I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. We have Christopher joining us. Tom, would you like to kick this off? Yeah, absolutely. Christopher, you and I spoke uh, about a half hour ago, 45 minutes ago, and um, you we just spoke very briefly, but I understand you had a uh, an encounter in North Georgia, and although we didn't have time to go into it, um, let's hear it. Uh, start from the beginning and tell us what happened. Okay. Well, I had... Uh... I had decided to go on a solo hiking trip on the Appalachian Trail. And, uh, you know, I had, I had spent about three days out there just kind of going at my own pace. And, uh, I really wasn't in any hurry. I, I wasn't really going in a north direction. Sometimes I was headed south. And, uh, I can't remember the shelter that I came to, but, um, I stopped at one of the shelters. And I was expecting other hikers to show up and I spent my day, uh, making coffee and, uh, drying out my gear because it had rained real heavily, uh, as it does on the Appalachian trail. And, um, I'd say about seven or eight o'clock, it started to get dark and still no other hiker had shown up at this shelter. <clears throat> and when nightfall hit, it was, it was one of those nights where there was no moon, right? So when it got dark, it got pitch black dark. And, uh, I have a headlamp that I use and I call it the sun cause it's super bright. And, uh, I put that on and, uh, and about it's, it's really weird out there, right? Cause when you're hiking on the AT, it, everything's real noisy. Uh, it's windy. Uh, limbs are always falling out of the trees. Um, you know, there's a lot of noise, but about eight o'clock when nightfall hit and it got super dark, everything went dead silent, the whole forest. And it was kind of eerie cause it was sudden, right? Like the whole thing just stopped. And, uh, I was just standing on the, on the deck of the shelter and I was actually on the right corner and I was just looking out and all of a sudden there was this howling scream to my left, to the left of the shelter. And I, I, I really couldn't mimic it, but it sounded very much, uh, like primate. And I was kind of struck in awe. And I wasn't scared. I was trying to figure out what it was. And I was using my headlamp and I was looking for it. And about three seconds later, there was another howling scream from behind me in the opposite direction. 
<clears throat> now, right after that happened, I started to get bombarded by sticks and rocks. Uh, they were being thrown at me from all directions, but it was weird because they weren't really being thrown at me as much as they were being thrown at the shelter. Um, I was, again, just kind of in awe and intrigued trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, I had all kinds of thoughts running through my head, like there's hikers out here messing with me. Um, it was it was a weird experience. But then I started to hear something run up behind the shelter, and it sounded like they flat palms slapped the back of the shelter and then ran off. And this continued for probably... 15 minutes as I'm just like standing on the front of the shelter trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and again, I'm on the right corner. I'm staying in that area cause it's very open and I'm looking out in all directions. And I was looking straight ahead off the shelter out into the woods when I heard something run up the side up the right side of the shelter and plant its feet behind me. And I froze, right? Because something just ran up behind me and just planted its feet. And I didn't know what to think. But at this time, I remember the only thought in my head was, I need to see what this is. And as soon as I even made the motion to turn around and look, I heard a huff, like, <sighs> and it ran off. And by time, I just scared the dog. By the time I turned around, it was gone. It was out of my sight. I never even got a glimpse of it. But from the sound of it, it sounded small. It, it wasn't what I had imagined because I'm six foot two, 160 pounds, and whatever it was sounded a lot smaller than me. Um, and it sounded barefoot. You know, because you know what bare feet sound like when it's running on the on the ground. And at this point, I did get scared. Uh, I felt fear rise up in me. Um, I grabbed my hiking stick and I carried a can a can of uh, pepper gel, and I I had it in my hand. And I started to back into the shelter. And when I did, I backed all the way into the corner with my back in the corner and had my headlamp fixated on the open doorway. Now there's no door on the shelter. There's just an open doorway. So uh, I kind of stood there in that corner for about an hour as rocks and sticks were continued to be, be thrown at the shelter and the something was still running up and slapping the back of the shelter. Um, and I just kind of sat there for about an hour and then I finally decided that I was going to climb up into the loft um, because I felt like I could defend myself better. And uh, so I did. And I laid up there awake with my headlamp fixated on the, uh, on the ladder. And I stayed there for about three hours, four hours. It was about three o'clock in the morning when everything stopped and went silent like they had left. And, uh, it was, took about another hour before I, I really just passed out from exhaustion because of all the adrenaline and 
uh, and fear and emotions and, uh, and then I slept for about two hours before I woke up in shock and packed my gear and hightailed it to the next shelter where I was hoping there was a lot of people and there were. <laughs> so that was my experience on the AT and I wish I could remember the name of the shelter because uh, on my way out, I did write something in the log because every shelter has a log where you can write your experience at the shelter. And I wrote something along the lines of uh, don't mess with the kids in the woods, you know, something like that. But yeah, it was a surreal experience. This was uh, two years ago. This was two years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, just briefly, when you and I talked, you said this was in North Georgia, right? On the AT? Yeah, right before uh, before you get into North Carolina. Okay. And we've actually heard, I mean, there's a lot of reports uh, on the AT and, and, and in Georgia, especially um, <clears throat> with the creatures. So, Gosh, that's just got to be a terrifying experience. Now, you said all of a sudden everything went quiet and you heard a scream on one and, the, and then the other one is like, what, 180 degrees opposite direction or? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It was it, I was surrounded and I had no idea. And they started bombarding the shelter with sort of pelting it with what sticks and pine cones and or rocks or yeah yeah and it was a uh, by my recollection just by just by the 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 number of uh screams and the direction in which things were being thrown and the one that was running up behind the shelter slapping uh the back of it i count that there was at least three so i don't know if there was more but there was at least three and did, and you got the sense that uh, I'm just going to kind of interpret here, but you got the sense that these are juveniles, or, or at least one of them was a small one, right? Yeah, yeah, one of them was definitely a juvenile. So, and I talked to my buddy about it, and he said that there's often re reports about uh, juveniles uh, working with hunting parties or something like that, and that they'll uh they'll send the juveniles in to um distract people that are in the area of or in their territory well here's a question the uh kind of a question i have is have you talked to anybody else who's who's hiked the at who's encountered this or actually not even the at but have you spoken with any, anybody else who's had uh bigfoot uh. encounters no, actually, I, I quit talking about it. Uh, <laughs> when I came back from my trip, I talked about it a lot. And, uh, you know, it felt like I, I started getting the feeling that my family and everybody thought I was crazy. And, uh, you know, I posted I posted the long story about what happened on Facebook. And, uh, you know, I just I got the I got the typical you're crazy response. And so I just I kind of shut down and quit talking about it altogether. Yeah, it's too bad. Um, because it really is, uh, you know, it's it's a traumatic experience. I mean, the, what you experienced was 
even more so, you know, the slapping of the shelters. I mean, Will and I, we I think we talked about this last night of how these things come up and just smack the back of a cabin or a house or whatever. And you know, people want to why. You know what it reminded me of while, yeah. was, while you were talking about it um, was my experience as a teenager. We talked about the Clark Ranch, you know, near uh, Roy Washington back in the mid seventies, and it was. We didn't have a shelter. We had a tent, and they didn't throw things at us. But you know, things would go quiet around us. I mean, there were there were you know millions of tree frogs, and they would stop in one spot all suddenly, and then we could tell they were moving, and we'd hear the vocals, and there was one screaming and another one answering from farther away, and 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 they just they were surrounded us all night doing stuff until I, I guesstimated, you know, like you said, around three a.m. I, I figured. You know, I didn't look at my watch. I, it was probably around four o'clock in the morning when we were exhausted and just finally went to sleep. And, and I think they left. They just they didn't bother us anymore. Yeah, that sounds very similar. Huh. Yeah, it's it's it goes back to this kind of a repeating pattern with these things, regardless East Coast, West Coast, um, other continents. You know, this is just something they do. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I was a disbeliever, you know, uh, I got a, I got a buddy that uh, goes out and tries to find evidence of them regularly. And he tried to convince me for years that they were real. And, uh, I never believed him and I always felt like he was trying to scam me. And, uh, and then I went out on the AT and had a personal experience alone and, uh, yeah, it kind of, it shifts your perception, that's for certain. Yeah, yeah it really does. <laughs> you know, and and it's funny because, you know, well, I talked about this last night, and that is, you know, for the, for the skeptic. And listen, I have no problem. I really don't with true skeptics because, um, you know, they, they kind of keep any kind of a, uh, you know, uh, these paranormal or, or crypto subjects sort of keep them in line. But at the same time, there's others that are, even when they get new information, they reject it. And, and I feel like saying, well, I tell you what, um, what are you doing tonight? <laughs> what are you doing this weekend? I well, got a spot we're going to go check out. Well, it always gets me to people say, well, you're crazy or whatever. And I'm thinking, okay, now you've never seen anything. You're saying that to somebody who did see something. So how is it that your your statement is credible? You know, what, what are you comparing it to? You don't know. You weren't in my shoes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard to question other people's experiences after you have one yourself. That's for certain. Well, yeah. And, so. and it sounds like these people are trying to, they're trying to prove a negative. They're trying to prove something doesn't exist when the reality of it is uh, you clearly had a very, very, uh, powerful experience with these things and i'm and i'm yeah. the fact that this happened <clears throat> the way it happened that's why i was asking you if you've spoken with other people on the at because i know that this has happened to many other people uh on the at maybe the shelter maybe to others but this isn't a one-off i'm sure that this has happened more than once i would imagine so uh especially it's like the you know on the at is very much like the rainforest so if they if i mean 
it's almost a perfect territory for them, you know? <clears throat> so. Yeah, it really is. It, it I absolutely just, is. I, I just, I don't really talk to people that hike regularly. And so I, I haven't brought it up in a long time. Uh, I told my story to a friend of mine and he's the one that referred me to you guys. And uh, he thought it would be a good idea if I told my story because it was a powerful experience that uh, not many people have actually gone through. And uh, so this is actually the first time I spoke about it in a year and a half. Christopher, it's it's a so, really solid account, is from my opinion. I, I've heard thousands over the years, and, and it's a really interesting and very uh, very concrete account. Because I've experienced those things myself, many of the things you experienced. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if I did go crazy out there. <laughs> well, you know... You're not alone in second-guessing yourself. All of us have done it that have had an experience with these things. Hmm. Yeah, I guess everybody goes through that thought process, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Well, yeah, it's it's out of the... It's, it's something out of our uh, frame of reference, out of the norm. So, well, listen, Christopher, I... Um, I, I I really appreciate you coming on and absolutely amazing encounter. So stay in touch with us if you get any new information. Uh, you yeah. you know how to reach out to us, but um, you can always and and this is for our audience as well. Just uh, shoot us an email. Questions at creekdevil.com is an excellent way to get a hold of us. And and Christopher, okay. if you you know if you got questions or whatever, by all means, get in touch with me, and and I'll do my best to answer anything I can for you. All right, and uh, I appreciate you guys letting me come on and tell my story. Uh, for real, I really appreciate it. Oh, we we it's, we definitely appreciate it. Uh, you know, you're uh, you're always welcome here. So, all right. Well. <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Being joined by Tony this evening in Georgia. Tony, how you doing? Good, good. Tommy, you want to kick this good. off? Absolutely. Hey Tony, good talking to you again. And uh, I want to say welcome aboard to Creek Devil. Um, you had some pretty good, uh, pretty incredible encounters. And the one that it really, one of the ones that really fascinated me the most was the one that ran next to your truck so i'm going to hand you the mic uh just start from the beginning and tell us what happened and give us give us all the details you have especially on that encounter because that was just absolutely amazing okay yeah this uh in october 2013 um i was driving semi down uh i-85 coming back from South Carolina and uh, it was about about mid afternoon and uh, it was a heavy downpour rain and uh, those road uh, interstate right there, I-85, it's like a roller coaster up there. You get to the top of the hills 
you know, with loads, you're not going as fast as you would be on a straightaway. And I got top of the hill, and uh, the rain was coming west. I was going southwest. I come out of the rain, and I was uh, having winch wipers going, clean off the windows. I was starting looking, looking down my gauges and uh, checking them out, and I seen something in my peripheral vision. And there's about 15-foot bank to the right, and it's all grass. It just stays that way, and then I just noticed something coming down the hill there. So I looked over, this thing was about 9, 10 foot tall. It was, you know, right out of the, right out of the story. And, uh, you know, I, it cut right and went. It was just running alongside this, my semi I was driving. And uh, I knew a lady was behind me in a, in a car. I can, I can get away with tapping the brakes a little bit. And uh, to get it out the front so I can see the whole body. And uh, I saw Bigfoot. I looked down at his feet, and it just covered with hair. He couldn't see an ankle or toes or anything. And uh, it was reddish-brown color, like a dead pine needle color. And it was long hair that was underneath the arms and long hair on the back of the head and the neck. And it was running so fast that the hair on the back of the head and neck was about 22 inches. It was running so fast, it was like somebody on a motorcycle. It was peeled back. It wasn't bouncing up and down. It was just peeled back, straight back. And there wasn't no waves in it or nothing. It was just, I mean, peeled tight, straight back in the air. And it was running like a fluid motion real fast. And uh, I started going down the hill a little bit. And uh, so the semi was kind of speeding up, and it it kind of backed up alongside that front right fender. And I think to myself, if somebody just is doing this, running alongside the corners right there close to the truck, if I just grabbed the wheel, I'd, you know, run over it. And uh, it's so dangerous right there. And uh, about that time, it cut right, went up into the woods, and uh, there wasn't nowhere to pull over at. And uh, it's just there's not enough room for a semi down through there. And I was thinking that the people across the road, you know, going another direction, they could have, might have seen, you know, what was going on. <coughs> and, uh, or what, as far further I got away from that area, I mean, uh, you know, there wasn't, I just kept on thinking, you know, there ain't no word pull over, ain't no word pull over, and just got further and further away from the area. And it makes it so very about 30 miles apart. And there's nothing but trees and creeks and maybe some golf courses. And uh, since then, you know, I, I started a website. It's Appalachian Bigfoot and Dogman Research. And uh, I've uh, I've seen many, many more in uh, four states I drive in. But, let, uh, me, uh, let me ask you a quick question, Tony. Actually, a couple of them. Because uh, this this is, like I said, it's really one of the more riveting. Well, they're, they're all riveting, but this is a really good encounter. How fast were you doing? So, how fast was the creature running, and how long was he beside you? Uh, I was thinking about forty-five, and uh, he was there at least a couple hundred, couple hundred feet. 250 feet, something like that, maybe. 
I mean, it, well, it, it, didn't, it didn't last too long, but it lasted long enough that, I mean, it was the most majestic, uh, most majestic thing I've seen. And uh, I come home and uh, wanted to take my tax money and put it in the bank and sell two cars that I own and put it in the bank and go get video close-up of what I missed, you know, not having a dash cam that day. Yeah, no kidding. What um, did he did he look at you at all? Did he? I mean, obviously he knows nope. you there. He's running next to you. He's you know I don't know if he was provoked or having fun or uh, what what we don't know what his motivation was. But did he ever? Yep. Did you ever look at his face? And did he ever stop and or not stop but turn and look at you when he's when nope. he's running? I, I think he was looking at me when he was coming down the bank, and then when he cut right, well, I looked over and he cut right. I mean, he stayed like almost, you know, he's a front right fender. I've sat back a little ways from him on the driver's side, and uh, so he's on the passenger he side. Of, he stayed right there on the front right, and uh, I couldn't couldn't see but the side corner and the back from where. I was. <clears throat> he never looked over at me, and uh, I think he might have showed himself to me, because I've been driving that area for months. My dad comes down from Ohio. He said uh, he seen one up there. It was huge. Well, that's and, my uh, next question, I, and I po- I apologize for for interrupting you. This will be the last question for a bit, but. How tall do you think he was? If you had to, if you had to take a guess, I say at least nine foot. Cause he was tall, just about as tall as the cab was. Wow, yeah, that's big. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I got COVID, so I was forgive me for coughing all the time. But uh, yep, uh, I I think I think he's still over in that area where I, I heard somebody else mention. Uh, one that described it just like it. He said when he walked back in the woods, he hit his head on that limb. That limb was 10 foot tall. And he described it same as I did, except he seen the front, which had a long beard. I'm not sure if it's the same one or not. And his name is Tim Peeler in North Carolina, about uh, 45 miles or so, right above where I seen this one at. And, uh, since then, I've seen, at some point, uh, not too long after that, I've, I started seeing more and more of them, and I kind of got anxiety, because I, when I come out of the house, I look to the left or right of the porch, out to the woods. I've been up uptown at the grocery store, look towards the woods, because I know how fast they run, you know, seeing this many, you know, uh, I didn't know if they was going to invade or what's going to happen. You know, uh, I, as far as I know, I'm I'm the only one that you know has seen so many in a short period of time, and, and uh, I do tell a lot of people. But it's like society's out here going hiking and walking up down the road and doing their non-slot things, you know breaking down side of the roads and stuff and uh I just don't know what I've seen. 
Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's pretty amazing. So, um, yeah, I'll just have you kind of give all the encounters, just kind of tell them in the order that they occurred, and uh, we'll sit back and listen. I might have a question or two, okay. but other than that, yeah, let's hear about it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Kind of after a while of seeing them, you know, I never did keep up with the date or, you know, the time of the year or whatever, but I've, I've seen uh, on I-85 northeast of Atlanta, you got one in Jefferson, Georgia. Uh, I've seen one in uh, Bessemer City, South Carolina. That was the one I just told you about, and I seen another one up there in North Carolina on I-85. Now, that's Bessemer City, North Carolina. The one in South Carolina is Oconee County. And, uh, trying to clear my throat up. And, uh, the one in, I start in North Carolina on I-85. I was driving down through there, and I seen what looked like a kid a younger kid, but it was all fur. It wasn't body skin. It was all black fur. And it was running down a power line, and it's kind of like, like laughing, like having a good time. And it kind of angled out into the woods, the tree line. So I went up a couple of exits and turned around and went back. There's a hotel shut out there, parked semi there. And uh, I think it's my marker uh, 7 or 11, one or the other. There's old... Uh, gas station shut or working there. And I parked that hotel. I walked around to the back uh, valley there, and uh, I, I seen a deer down there. I, I didn't see the bigfoot. I seen the deer. I think that might have been what had been chasing. And I was looking around, looking around the woods, and uh, this kid he started coming back from that gas station, coming across, cutting through the woods, going to a house, and. Uh, I told him what I was doing in there, what I just seen in there, give him a warning. He said, he said, uh, something was throwing rocks at me the other day. I was walking through here. And, uh, later on, I, I've hiked that area and, uh, found a barn, a hay barn up not too far from there and an old house was shut down. You know, nobody lived in it had a hole in the, in the ceiling in it. And, uh, I didn't see no footprints around them, but uh, I kept step, stopping in there every once in a while, especially when it got snowed around there, thinking I might, you know, look up on a footprint around that barn with hay in it. And uh, I did find a footprint there, and it was in the water, under the water, and I could put my hand in there, and I could feel it. It was a toe print, and I got a picture of it. And... Uh, Got uh, South Carolina. That was Oconee County. It was about mile marker around uh, seven. And uh, get down into Georgia. I was coming northeast on I-85 in Jefferson, Georgia. It's on I-85 too. And uh, it was it was back to back traffic. It was like seven in the morning. And there's nowhere to pull pull over on that that interstate. And uh, it was bumper to bumper, and everybody was just, you know, doing 70. And uh, I come out underneath that uh, bypass, over overhead uh, bridge there, and uh, that exit. And I looked over to my left, and this huge 
Black Bigfoot was standing there. He was wide as a refrigerator. I mean, he was big, too. He was tall. He, he's got to be like at least nine or ten foot. And he now, this was, there like, this was when you were, again, driving your truck, or how, how did you yep, see driving, this one? Yep, driving semi. And uh, I've seen most of them driving the interstate uh, from the semi. And uh, he was standing there like he didn't have a care in the world. He was up on top of the embankment. That exit embankment is about uh, <coughs> the, the ramp is way down. And, and the embankment is way up, probably about 120 feet up. I'm on the radio. Can you finish that hamburger? It's burnt. Okay. And uh, so it was just standing there like didn't have a care in the world, you know. And uh, wasn't moving his head at all, just, just watching. I just couldn't believe it. I was just hopping up and down my seat and turning my head and looking back and and the traffic just right on my tail and uh exits like i said 30 miles apart it had been an hour before i got back up there and back and uh i had to be somewhere uh deliver that load get a load and then come back the same day when my time runs out and i stopped in there maybe a week or two later and a little truck stopped right down the road there's a quick trip i walked up that way and you can see the uh, pine trees where they ripped the pine trees off on opposite sides of different pine trees. And uh, I think he, he, he's the one that did it, he or she. I mean, he's huge, black. And I just couldn't believe it. He just didn't have a care in the world standing there. And, Let me ask uh, you this, Tony. Um, have you have you had a chance to – have you spoken with any other truck drivers – who may have had similar encounters or who have seen these things. Yeah. I talked to a truck driver, uh, in North Carolina. I think I was at a garage up that way getting something fixed or picking up a load. And a guy said that he was coming down, uh, Mount Eagle, Tennessee. And he seen one standing on the side of the road and just watched him as he drove by. He was coming down, uh, I think the south side of, of Mount Eagle. Okay, and that's kind of what I was looking for. So you're not the only one. You, you, There's other truck drivers that have encountered these things that you know of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure of it because uh, out of like 95% of all the ones I've seen, they're either alongside the interstate, can be seen from the interstate, or a mile away from the interstate. Every one of them. And this is, these are predominantly in, you said North Georgia and South Carolina. Is that, am I correct? Or? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, uh, coming out of Atlanta, Northeast, running alongside the interstate, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. And, uh, Right here in North Georgia and Tennessee, they're all about, uh, I'd say, 60 miles away from the Appalachian Mountains around the bottom, you know, uh, underneath the Appalachian Mountains, there's Interstate I-85, about right. uh, 60, mi- 60 miles under under Interstate, and then I-75 runs up along the bottom left-hand corner of Appalachian, 
and uh, and then I twenty four runs out out away from Appalachian too. You know, we just spoke with a gentleman, Christopher from Tennessee, not the regular Chris we have on, but this is a different gentleman who went, he hiked the AT and really had a terrifying encounter with these things. So so it's an area, it's a hot spot. Yeah, I I seen one right down the road, uh, down the interstate, you can see up along top of the bank in between the trees, it was... uh, a lot of space in between the trees, and there's pineals along the bottom, and it was looked like a teenager, but it's hiked down, and it was sneaking up on top of the, on the ridge line, top of the ridge line, looking down on the other side of the, the hill at something. I don't, I don't know if it was, uh, you know, uh, being a predator on something or is hunting or what, and uh, that was early in the morning one time, and then. Uh, I seen one. So let me uh, let me uh, get some more details on that one. So it was sneaking. Was it was it crouched down or what? What was it doing yeah. that made you think it was it, sneaking? Yeah, it was it was walking on two legs and it was sneaking. It was crouched down, and it, it was uh, you know trying to be real sneaky onto something that was he was looking at on the other side of the, on the other side of the mountain. Okay, on, and you he's on top of the ridge line. Okay, and then and you're seeing this as you driving by in your truck, correct? Yep, driving by in the oh. semi. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yeah, what I, color was he? I, I watch for these things. He's black. Okay, that sounds like a juvenile. Yep. Yep. And uh, I seen one over here in Calhoun, Georgia where Trail of Tears started, and uh, I was taking my daughter uh, out to the country, and then I, I looked over, and I said, I told my daughter, I said, there's one right there, and she didn't look what I told her to, and the, and, and the way the angle of the road was, it cut her off from seeing it back there in the back corner. It's like a, uh, it's where they have a bunch of old houses and and stuff like that, where uh, a newspaper just started, and uh a bunch of Indians said play back there and all kinds of stuff and, and go to court. And uh, and it was standing back there. It looked like a bulge on its belly. I thought it might have gorged itself on something. But then I got to thinking, it's missing hair along the side of it and body, and it's kind of matted out a little bit. I was thinking maybe because it didn't have a breast. I, that's why I thought maybe it just gorged itself on something, you know, half animal or it might have ate a dog. I don't know, but. I got to thinking that there's missing hair on along the side of the body. I was thinking that uh, it might have been laying on that side. It maybe felt comfortable on that side. It, it laying on that side. And uh, it looked like it had a distressed look in its face. And when I got out of the car, my daughter's like, no, take my mom, take my mom. So I took her to mom's house to come back. And then I walked in and I couldn't find it. All I could find was... Uh, a sound sound like a bullfrog about as big as a, a basketball. I couldn't find the Bigfoot in there anyway. No tracks or nothing. And it was skinny. It might have been five and a half foot tall. What uh, what was the forest what was the forest floor like? Was it uh hard dirt or, or pine needles, yeah. duff? Yeah, it was hard grass. 
because they they mow that area right there. It's kind of like a, a tour place. It's got a bunch of old houses sitting up on bricks, on rocks. <laughs> and uh, um, I've seen uh, three, which is uh, on across town. I was hiking alongside uh, a creek. Uh, there's a railroad track. It's over behind uh, a chemical plant. It's, it's a lot of wooded area alongside that, that creek and that river track and stuff. I was hiking back through there on my own, and I was thinking to myself, you know, I was thinking you know, I might see one, you know. That's what I was thinking. And then uh, I was hiking along now. I felt this feeling of, like, I was being preyed upon. So I was looking around uh, a lot more, and uh, so I keep my head on swivel anyway. And I, I kept walking. Uh, that feeling passed, and I kept walking. Then I come up on three Bigfoot, reddish-brown, about nine foot each of them. And they were eight foot. They was standing down the embankment right next to the creek, and they were standing up with... with and each one of them had their head down like they were sleeping. Like they were standing up sleeping. They had their head down. It was a foot away from each other. It was facing each other. And when I come up on them, my mouth dropped, and they woke up or whatever. They, their faces, they looked at me. And when their mouth dropped, they got huge mouths. When they, their, their mouth dropped, their jaw dropped, I mean, it was a big opening. They're just draw. They just, they was wide-eyed and wide-mouthed just, just as I was because there's three instead of one there's three and they're real close to me so how far away were they, they when you saw them about 35 feet or less than 20 25 okay and, so uh, when you see let me um like, let me back up for a second so did you come around a corner or go over a crest or uh, that you just kind of stumbled come, on I was just coming through the woods. It's kind of heavy wooded area, and and once I seen them and they seen me, there was a huge tree to the right of me, and I turned. I went around the tree. <coughs> so I just want to step right out down to them, right in front of them, even closer. I just want to go around this tree, just take two more steps and be right there with them, and whatever happens, the encounter, you know happens and when i come stepped a few more steps around that tree it was gone there was nowhere they could have went it was gone they were they just vanished there's nowhere they could have went in that short of time they was there's there's trees on our side of the river on our side of the creek that was probably about another 30 feet and then there's no trees left to ride of me they could have went in or nothing, and uh, you know, I just got the feeling that they're not there. They're not here, and then I walked down to where they was, and there's no feeling there either, and I was looking around, and there's nothing, and uh, I kind of put a damper on my whole uh, finding them and having different encounters or, or getting uh, evidence and stuff, but it still can be done, you know, and uh, 
that did put a, da- a downer on the whole situation, though. <laughs> and then, uh, <coughs> excuse me. And, uh, I posted online a while later. <coughs> and, uh, this guy said that he worked at a chemical plant for like 30 years. He said that he used to watch them all the time on a CV, CTV or something like that, a black and white security camera, uh, TV, all that stuff. He said that he used to try to get where they come in now at what times or whatever, but he said they would always go in out of the wood tree line at different areas. Yeah, that was you and I talked about that. Let's let's go into a little bit of detail on that. So there's a chemical plant. They've got security, the CCTV security cameras. And these guys, who are the security guys who are tasked with monitoring the area on a routine basis, would see these creatures and would try to follow them with the cameras. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. They would they would watch them, and they would not they wouldn't go in and out of the tree line in the same areas. They'd always uh, go different directions. And. Uh, that how long of, did that uh, how long did that last? I mean, did was it months, weeks, days, years? Did you get a sense uh, of sounds like it was uh, almost routine with these guys? Yeah. I should go and uh find out that post, find that post and go uh interview and stuff like that with them. Um I know it's close to an airport. And a lot of drones, we, we, we can't even, uh, some drones, they won't even fly up in the air because you're so close to the airport and stuff. And uh, there's a chemical plant over there, and there's uh, an airport, and there's not much over there. Uh, I haven't been back over there since, and uh, I, I plan on going over there sometime, checking it out again, see if I can find something. But uh, that was definitely interesting and uh, interesting day. And uh, also, I seen one up there in Chattanooga. I was driving semi, and it was. I looked over to the right in the power line area. And there was high grass, and it was black. It was huge. It was just sitting down. It was squatted down, and it was sitting in the high grass there. And there's a field over next to it. Right close to it is the Bass Pro Shop now. It wasn't there then. But this is all a no-hunting area. It's right behind the rest area. And there's a recreation over area that, over too where people uh, walk around trails and stuff like that back in there. There's creeks, rivers, swamps back there. And uh, it was real close there. And uh, it was in the power line area right next to the tree line. And it was shaking his head back real erratically. I mean, it's like flinging his head back far left to far right, just back and forth, back and forth. Uh, no human does that. And it's irregular to, to see anything do that. And it was huge and it's black. And then there's a road that comes up back over to the recreation area. And then there's a car that was going that, that direction. It jumped back like it didn't want to be seen. And uh, I don't know if that, I don't think it's new i seen it. And uh, it's about a week or so later it's about 45 miles above my house. A week later, I, I, I go up there and I hike in that area and I find footprints all over the place. 
I find a twisted tree that's real twisted. Uh, it's probably about two and a half inches in diameter. It's all twisted up. And uh, trees broke, uh, footprints all over the place, different sizes. And uh, so I hiked that area many, many times. And uh, an oil company owner from Wisconsin, he called me up. And he said he wanted to go in there. He's got a night vision scope. And you can actually hook a video camera up to it, but he didn't have one hooked up to it. And he told me he was going to come down, and then he couldn't show the first time. So about a month or so later, he called me up. He's coming down. He's going to fly in, him, his fiancée, and the guy I grew up with. So they they flew in, and then they ran the Mustang. We went up there, hiked during the daytime. We took pictures of footprints and all kinds of stuff. And a tree, tree like a tree teepee that was made and uh so we go and uh, get something to eat and get a drink and then uh we go in there at night and i already knew how to look at this use this scope he had and i looked it up online see how to use it and uh we went in there and the guy he grew up with he we went in there and i told him i said before we go in there so i ain't never been in here with him at night I don't, if we have a counter, I don't know what they'll do. I said, I got a Glock, you know, 45 I carry. I said, uh, if anything happens, we all walk out of here together. And everybody get behind me if, 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 if you no, know, they get mad or get scared or whatever. Cause I got that Glock. And another guy, he got a big stick, you know. And we got, uh, like one or two flashlights and our cell phone, about it. And we go in and the guy, he grew up with, he got a big stick, and he, he slapped the side of the tree, and then, and then instantly, you get a tree knock over to the left, probably about 35 yards. And then, uh, I mean, that that right there opened my eyes. And then, so he did it again, and it replied again. And so I told him, I said, come on, let's walk on up this trail here, and we can look to the left. It's always flooded on that area. When it's dried up, you know, there's not much foliage that way. You can look, we can look through the scope and might be able to see whatever there was, uh, was hitting that tree or flying back. And we couldn't, we went over there and we couldn't find it. We, we stayed in the trail there. And, uh, that guy, he yelled with his hand. And right, right where that wood knock was, a little one yelled. <clears throat> and, uh, so a little Bigfoot yelled. So not even two seconds later, the giant yelled. He was about 70 yards out. And when he yelled, uh, it really opened my eyes. I said, golly, this thing's huge, right? It's got some pressure. It's got some lungs. It's got some real force behind it. And then uh, so we was all standing around with looking that way with the scope, looking towards another you know, big one. And this is all heavy foliage, heavy trees, and I know that I know that area. I've hiked it many times, and, and uh, this creek, big river. Uh, it's not a fast road or whatever, but it's a huge river. It's not it's not real deep, and then uh, it's uh, swampy area, low brush and stuff like that. And within a like a couple minutes. I mean, it, it was quiet out that way. 
in a couple minutes, it did like a, a long yell run by probably about 15 yards out. And it was, and it ran like at an angle, oh, uh, kind of towards us, but away from us. And I said, it sounded like it's coming in, you know. We we sat there and looked and looked up and down the trail and out to the woods for that night vision scope and flashlights and stuff. Was, and it never did come in. And uh, we didn't get no more experience, no tap, no yells or nothing else. So eventually we worked our way out back to the power line area through this trail heading back to the road. And we and the old company owner, he, we all just stood there in the, in the trail in the high high, high uh, weed area in the power line area. <clears throat> and between me, us, and that, and that trail, and a creek was about 30, 35 feet, 40 feet for the creek. And that power line area right next to that tree line, the oil company owner spots it. He says it's huge. He said he was, he, he kept describing himself. He kept describing all the hair standing on my back. And uh, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that and everything. And then he said he sees it. And then it's looking at us. And it's kind of leaning out away from the tree line and then back in and then out looking at us and then back in. And then he finally hands me the scope and I'm looking and I can't find it. I think I was looking too far to the right. And uh, I hand him back the scope and he can't get it back. He can't find it again. He can't find it this time. So we walk out and we go in the next day and he takes a picture He's going, he's going. He's going to take a picture, holding a stick up how how tall he thought it was, and then he won that picture of himself holding that stick up right there where it was. And we walked back in that area, and you can tell that high grass area is about six foot around where it has been trampled. All that high grass area there. I don't know if it laid down and rolled around or what. <coughs> so I got that picture of that old company owner holding that stick there, and. uh he, he can verify it. Uh, Candy is her name. She can verify it. And the guy I grew up with. And uh, I, since then, I've, I've, I've hiked that area on the other side of the interstate, too. There's a creek that runs underneath the interstate. So you can get to one side to the other through that creek area. I thought about putting a tree, a tree cam there and uh, putting it up where a light you know, don't get the reflection of the light. The street light will block that light out from the tree camera. But uh, I was hiking through there in the rain. I usually hike alone. Uh, some people hike with me and they only hike once. And then uh, they don't say that or whatever. They, they don't hike again. I, I was hiking that area in the rain thinking I might sneak up on them. They might not hear me or smell me or I might get to drop on them at least. And I, I seen this tree that was there that was broke. So I took a selfie and I snapped it. That selfie and me and that tree right behind me. And then I, I hiked along some more. And then I, right next to the creek, I see this big, huge footprint. And it looked like a huge toe. So I hiked back up the road. It was dirt road with a bunch of ruts in it to swallow a car up. I had a Honda at the time. And I had, you know, uh, casting material, plastic cast in the car and the trunk. 
I got down as far as I can with the car. And then I took my uh, casting bucket and everything, and I, I I dipped in the creek, made some casting material up, and uh, I found a little styrofoam cup over there. It was raining, and it, the print was full of water. So I dipped it, dipped that water out as much as possible and poured that casting material in there. There's old, uh, it's kind of junk around there. There was an old frame, car frame there. Somebody had been mudding in it. Uh, there's old TV or whatever. I took the back off the TV and I put it over top of that cast so the rain wasn't hitting exactly on it. But uh, I got home the next day. Uh, I uh, I sprayed that cast off with a, with a garden hose. And you can look and it see, you see the big footprint but that toe wasn't a toe. That toe was the smaller smaller one's footprint. And I think they did that on purpose. They they made it look like a big toe on the side of, on the side of that foot. And then uh so I think you know, I think they did that on purpose. To conceal the fact that they had a a young one with them? I'm not sure, but it, they had to, to have really, you know, maybe stomped her foot down into that material because it's kind of like a, a like a red clay sort of. It was dirt kind of clay, and it was it was. I got a picture of my finger down there. It's about inch and a half down in there deep, or two inches. <coughs> so the little one had to have done the same thing, and. uh and then I, I took a look at that selfie that I took for that tree that was broke beside of me. And then that selfie, I seen two Bigfoot. The, I seen the bigger one off to the left of me about 20 feet. And then I seen the other one about 30 feet. It was back behind me in a, in a, in a, looking through the trolley, uh, foliage of the trees. So I got both of them in that selfie that was behind me. They was both close to me. And that was that was before I went down there and got that cast of that footprint. And that cast is twenty inches by eight inches wide. Yeah, that's pretty big. Uh, I got that. I got that in my closet. I took it to a, a Bigfoot museum over here in Cherry Log, Georgia, about an hour away from me. And uh, they were supposed to make it, put it in a display case, and they had it for I don't know six months. They said someone tried to uh, steal it one time and uh, try to sit on it. Yeah, so I went. I went and got it back. They said they don't have no room for it. They they added on to the building, and uh, and uh, they they don't put my. I've been researching it since 2013, and they said they won't put nobody's picture on the wall. I told them put my picture on the wall. They they won't do it unless you research Bigfoot for 30 years or so. Oh, and, uh, oh, that's 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 interesting. Well, listen, um, Tony, we we're we're just about out of time, but I want to thank you. And you have some absolutely incredible encounters. Um, and and do me a favor and stay in touch with us, would you? And um, yeah, you know, as you get if if you get any new information, uh, get a hold of us. We'd like to hear about it. Okay. Yeah, but I, I hadn't seen them in a while. It might be going on at least, I'm saying about 
least a year. You know, it was seemed like every several months, you know, or six months, it seemed like I'd see one, but I ain't seen one in a long time now. Well, keep it, it, it keep got, us in it touch. Got, it got so, got so so many in certain short period of time though at one point that I had anxiety, you know, outside. Yeah, no, they they do absolutely. I've I anytime I get around proximity of these things, whether I see it or not, it it definitely uh, ramps up the anxiety. All right. Well, listen. Um, again, stay in touch, and we will stay in touch as well. So I want to thank you, Tony, and absolutely great encounter. So, folks, yeah, stand by for our next segment. All right, welcome back from the break. Fellas, what do we got in the way of questions today? Well, Will, I'll start off. Um, one of the questions that came up, I think, in the YouTube comments, but but um, just in general, are you surprised that we don't hear any about more sightings or encounters about this creature? You know, actually, we get a lot of them. Um, I don't know. In the news, they probably don't put them out that much, but because uh, you know the media wants kind of hype, and I, I think you know a lot of the sightings go unreported by the media because they're just kind of run of the mill, so to speak. But we actually get quite a few of them. You know, that's actually a good point. I was actually thinking about that um, just the other day that. You know, there's no, and we've talked about this in the past, there's no clearinghouse for reports to come in, to get tabulated. Um, <clears throat> you know, people don't have a, and honestly, I, the you know, what do we say? We think there's many, many, many unreported sightings for everyone that we get. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of groups, quote unquote, out there that claim they're, you know, doing this. And, and, you know, like the BFRO and some of those, but they're really not very good. And the BFRO and groups like that will change reports. You know, if the person's encounter doesn't fit in with, you know, their belief system, they'll alter it. So, um, you know, not in all cases, but, you know, I've been told quite a few times by witnesses that that's happened. So Yeah, yeah and that's right. got to be frustrating. You know, you're giving them editorial rights to... Uh, your encounter um, <clears throat> so it's and I I would you know we've talked about this I mean it'd be I don't think it's a stretch at all that there's probably 50 at a minimum it could be a much higher number than that 50 unreported sightings and encounters for everyone that actually gets reported yeah, I used I used to say twenty twenty to one, but it's probably a higher number than that. I mean, there's no way of knowing for sure, of course. No, yeah. no, there really isn't. You know, Tom, that that's that's a a great point, and and Will to kind of go back to what you were saying, uh, I think that they a lot of times they they put in a report that fits with their own um, preference. So a lot of times I think that they in like well we won't 
say any group names, but um, a lot of times they try to say that that uh, this creature is oh it's it's benign and it's friendly and so forth. But the fact is that a lot of times <laughs> the reports don't come in that way, or they're, they're they don't fit that narrative. You know, I've got plenty of reports too that where people asked, you know, not that their story not be put out. And, uh, you know, they're seeking some kind of information or, you know, they want to know what it is that they experienced, you know, so I get plenty of those too. But, you know, with this show, we try to make, uh, a platform for people to talk about, get it out of their system, what they experienced, you know, and, uh, and it's a way to validate, you know, what they experienced too, because, you know, a lot of people are still afraid of ridicule. Exactly. Yeah, very much so. You know, and the other thing is. Um, you know, not only do we validate it, but it gives them, you know, they get it off their shoulders and not one. I, I don't think we've had a, and I say that tongue in cheek, think we haven't had a single credible encounter where somebody's really had an encounter with one of these things that was where they just felt, oh, this was such a wonderful thing. Uh, <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> it's. It's just the opposite. People are, you know, the very heightened sense of anxiety and fear. And, you know, where does that come from? Well, it doesn't come from a benign creature. Well, I think the most benign type of report I've gotten is, you know, the person saw the thing in it and it was, you know, brief sighting and, and, but they didn't still didn't feel like it was, you know, some mystical experience. You know, they, they saw the creature, um, and it put more questions in their mind than anything. And then, of course, yeah, exactly. Then, of course, you encounter uh, for, sort of escalate from there, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, and how many times have we heard people say they didn't believe in it, or they didn't think about it, or both of those, right up until the moment when they saw it? And it's like you've said, it's totally outside of their frame of reference. Yeah, lots of times. Many, 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 many people have reported, you know, that they uh, either had no thought about it up to that point or simply didn't believe the creatures existed. And then, you know, the fact that it was in front of them, of course, changed that. Yeah, very much so. Tom, you have a question? I do. Uh, Dev writes and says, I've noticed adult females have few young. Why is this? I would expect they would have as many young as they can to ensure survival. Good question. They seem to be exercising family planning, reducing the number of young. Could this be a conscious decision or is it imposed on by other factors such as food supply? And real quick, um, I just want to ask an, a question here where where does this information come from that the adult females have few young and right. how do you define that right because we really don't know however <clears throat> having said that groups are typically four to six individuals something that varies uh, and it can be more we're seeing some larger groups in areas now but um and she brings up a good point food availability is a, is a large control when it comes to population size um, you know, on the northwestern, or I should say the northern uh, continent of America, where the creatures primarily are, at least, you know, our version of them, uh, you know, food isn't, you know, like that simple to go out and get, you know, and then being ambush predators, etc. 
you know, a lot of that's going to dictate how large the group size is. So, yeah, that's going to have a huge effect on it. Well, and, and the other thing is they're primates. So primates typically, you know, it's I don't know if she's asking why don't they have a litter. Um, but, you know, it's one baby at a time or maybe twins. But Yeah, right. And it's, it's not like they have a breeding season every year. They're um, going to be more like we are, I would suppose. Brian, you have a question? Well, yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I know that we, we, we've talked about this before, but how much do these creatures eat? Like, like what, what's their diet like? Well, they eat pretty much everything. They're omnivores, so they're going to eat everything, um, uh, including garbage. So, uh, I, you know, it, what it appears to be is primarily from hunting, you know, and then scavenging and, and then uh, vegetables vegetation to supplement that so a little bit of everything whatever uh whatever they can get get their hands on literally and i think researchers are on the list too aren't they yeah yeah they would be there (laughs) (laughs) not in large quantities but you know right there's one here and there yeah and 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 well i I know i asked this um a couple weeks ago but i mean we all always think of them eating deer, but they'll eat cows and horses, maybe. I mean, they'll eat anything, right? Yeah, I think a lot of times, you know, if animals, particularly livestock, disappear, you know, it's a good possibility that, you know, they were taken by one of the creatures, more than likely the younger ones, you know, because, the, you know, the young are, are always a primary, um, you know, target for prey animals. Daryl and Annie from Australia have a really good question, <clears throat> and this has to do with language. So another question from Australia, any ideas on the Sasquatch lang- language? Have they? Do we know of any set words or phrases that could be clearly identified as a language, like Jane Goodall, you know, she identified as uh, chimp speech? Well, you got to remember, too, you know, you might might identify something as as quote-unquote speech but it's going to be group specific in other words a language would be something that you know let's say across the species across the board in other words you know you go from one region to the next and and whatever sounds they make are are going to be understood by the other you know individuals from that region uh and it's not true you know it's group specific they all might make the same kinds of vocalizations but they're going to be different understandings of them per group you know, that's actually a really good point, because quite often you hear reports of people who have heard heard them mimicking creatures in the forest, which they were obviously not. Right. You know, owls and whistles and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's, I don't know, what is it? Is it is it an alert? Uh, who knows? Yeah, it's, it's an unknown. I mean, there's a lot of guesses, but it's still an unknown. Yeah, yeah, it sure is, so... And I think it'd be, I don't know how you go about um, determining that. That would really require, you have to be within proximity of them. you got to, you know, I think you'd almost have to sit down and interview one of these things to say, what is that? You know, point to a rock or a log. Well, and and would, about that time, you end up on the dinner table. Yeah, you'd need some linguistics experts to with long-term observation, you know, and, and, and associate with, 
certain behaviors and things like that. But uh, yeah, at this point, there's just no way of knowing because there isn't any long-term observation. Hey, so Will, uh, here's a question from from somebody on our uh, YouTube page, and he just would like to know uh, what reason do you have for referring to these creatures than something other than primates? Like, how would you classify them? Well, I mean, okay, you have to look at how how creatures, how, you know, animals and plants are, are classified. And there's a whole system that science has for classification. And what puts them into the, the family of primates, which we're a member of also, monkeys, apes, etc., um, has to do with physical characteristics or physical similarities. That's how you classify something. In other words, you wouldn't you wouldn't put them in the family of horses or um, you know birds or anything like that. They they're most like us in physical characteristics. So that's what places them in the family of primates. Yeah, I mean, like he he wasn't uh, like bashing us or anything like that but he, he like that was just kind of a general question oh no I, I mean we've had there's been one or two people that have you know kind of gotten fired up about that with questions and you know how can how can how can they be primates or we're not primates or i mean it's it's a matter of just looking it up online you can look it up the classification systems and see why things are placed in certain groups you know we're a primate monkeys and chimps are primates the sasquatch is a primate Okay, so I've got a question that's uh, related to all that, and it used to be the term was hominid, and then it changed from hominid to hominin, and do you know the reason for that? Is it, is it more specific, and is hominid still a valid term? Well, we, we'd have to ask else. John, our, our forensic anthropologist, he'd be more knowledgeable. I haven't really kept up on they change terminology periodically over the years. It just sort of depends on, you know, the scientific community and, and why they make those changes. But uh, I, I think it has to do with now they're, now they're thinking, and, and maybe it's based on DNA, I don't know, that, uh, you know, the great apes have more in common with us than we previously believed. I think that that's the basis for it, but I'm not totally sure on that. We'd have to ask John. Well, um, interesting thought. Um, yeah, as far as great apes being maybe more similar to us, I think I've actually had a few bosses like that, so I, I can understand that. <laughs> well, you know, when they when they say like chimps have nine, share ninety eight percent of the same DNA that we do, but they don't mention you know that other two percent is a is a vast amount of differences. So uh, it's kind of it's kind of misleading in a way those numbers when they throw them around. Yeah, and that actually kind of threw me as well. It's like, what the heck? You know, a chimp is 97, 98%, so we're, you know, there's only uh, 2 to 3% difference. But, my gosh, you know, you look at them, they're, they they have uh, two arms, two legs, and that's about it as far as similarities. It kind of go. goes to the same thing, you know, people calling the Sasquatch people. Well, they're not people. They're not human. They might be. They might appear a little bit closer to us because of the way they they walk on two legs, etc. But when when you look at them, there are vast differences between them and human beings, just like there are between us and chimps and gorillas. So the DNA could be close, but you know the the parts that aren't shared are really really big. So 
again, that's kind of uh, it's kind of misinformation a little bit. You know the way it's thrown out there. Vicky well, from Wisconsin. Uh, oh, go ahead, Brian. You're next. Oh no, no, yeah, okay. No, I was going to say because um, one of our YouTube uh, listeners also or viewers also asked, uh, do you think that these creatures existed before we did? I mean, do you think they existed before the continents, um, continents separated? Like, like no, no, no. Okay. Okay. There, there's two different questions there. Did they exist before us? Probably, uh, because they were in places, not just, not just here in North America, but other places where, you know, the local people, you know, lo- original inhabitants of those places say that they were they were there before, you know, their ancestors came there. So that kind of gives us a clue that the creatures are older, you know, species as a species than we are. Uh, but you have to look when the continents divided. That was, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago. You know, long before, um, you know, any sort of mammals existed. So, or, or, you know, if they did exist, they were, you know, more like the size of mice and things like that. They weren't anything large like these creatures very different things there okay vicky from wisconsin has a question that uh, i really appreciate it's one that i've had myself and she wanted to know what is the reasons uh, why do dogs have such a strong reaction to sasquatch is it because they can hear the infrasound um do they have better you know they do have better hearing than humans do obviously dogs do and they seem to know when the creatures are around, even before we do. And we hear that all the time. And she mentions that her dog is terribly afraid of lightning <clears throat> and starts pacing a half hour before the storm is even close. So I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, maybe some sort of atmospheric, barometric, you know, the dog can sense that sort of thing. Um, but I, I'll just real quickly relate my own personal experience <clears throat> I was camping two three years ago and about oh, middle of the night uh, some of these things started making scream barks mm-hmm. and initially in the campground the dogs there was a series of dogs that sort of barking and you know when one dog barks they all bark and, and it's like oh my goodness actually I thought it was good because I'm like I got witnesses they're four-legged and they're furry, but I got witnesses. They're hearing the same thing. And then as if on cue, all the dogs, and I mean in mid-bark, stopped. And that was it. Not another peep out of them. So back to the question is, what is it? Is it smell? Is it sound? Do we have any idea why dogs have such a reaction to these creatures? Well, there's. it isn't just dogs. Um, you know, I've experienced it with tree frogs. And, and I think a lot of it is instinct. There's other factors going on. I mean, uh, and I'll refer to one of the episodes of, you know, if anybody's watched Swamp People, it's a great show. Uh, they talked about one part of the swamp. On, on one, I don't remember what episode in the season it was, but there were some, it was an area that they hadn't been to or nobody had been to for a long time. And there were a lot of really big alligators in the area. You know, these, these uh, apex predators in that region. And they talked about how silent it was and that all the other animals knew when, when the big predators were there. And, and I suspect a lot of it is, is instinct and things like that. And it goes, especially with dogs, you know, dogs are, are pretty smart. They uh, have a lot of instinct 
and that's probably what it boils down to when large predators are in the area especially apex predators you know everything that's you know becomes aware of their presence reacts that way yeah so really what you're saying is it could be both it could be both sound and smell they simply it probably is yeah yeah whatever mechanism they suddenly sense there's something new and big and uh very dangerous and i'm just going to shut up i'm going to i'm going to back up just a little bit to the previous question before this one when they were talking about you know the creatures existing okay and and people are confused about this so when when all the continents were together it was called pangea um okay so it says here that it was assembled from earlier continental units approximately 335 million years ago and Pangaea began to break apart around 175 million years ago, so that was long before any sort of primate existed. Because primates have been around, I think, around 10 to 15 million years. So, big, big difference. Okay, Brian, did you want to jump in next? I, I wanted to clear that up just a little bit for listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so... Just in general, uh, what are the best, like, what's the best material to cast tracks with? Well, I've, I've always used plaster. I mean, that was kind of the old, old fashioned way of doing it. Um, we've recently got some dental plaster that's supposed to be better. We haven't really played with it much. I know some people have, some people use other methodology, but, um, you know, the cheapest way to do it is plaster of Paris. Yeah, and um, like, how accurate are the 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 samples that you that you've seen um, in in terms of casting? Like, how how accurate are they? You mean the detail that comes out of a plaster cast? Yeah, yeah, it's good. I mean, it, it captures all the details. Yeah, and it would probably depend on, you know, if it's in rough soil, rough dry soil versus, you know, the footprints will that we've seen that are incredible is when these things step into silty mud or clay mm-hmm. yeah you it just depends easy it yeah. depends on the material and, and the quality of the track well here's a question i have on on the because uh, i've never cast <clears throat> you'd think i would but i've just i haven't really you know i just haven't brought the plaster paris and water up to any of the areas that i go to once you cast a track, you're assuming you find a good one, you cast it. What? How long do you have to wait before you can dig it out of the ground? I've read this in your book. <laughs> it really depends on the weather conditions. You know, even even if it's um, you know hot outside, I still leave it in for an hour or two because um, the first time I cast one, you know, years ago, nobody told me how to do it. I found some really good tracks on this alongside of this road in southern Washington, and um, you know, it, when I went to pull it out, it, it broke all the pieces. So, you know, nobody told me how to do it. So, partly it wasn't dr- quite dry enough. Partly it was I didn't know how to remove it from the soil. You can't just lift it out. Um, in my experience, you, I always take a knife with me so I can dig it out, and then I clean the dirt off as after it dries really good. So it's, it can be a fairly lengthy process. Okay. So that's what I was wondering, because if you're in an area that's, the you know, if it, there's some activity around, 
I don't know. Do I want to hang around for a couple hours? Now, if you have a group of people with you, you're probably going to feel better about it. So Yeah, you don't, don't want to go alone. Secondly, what I do sometimes, um, if I'm casting, I'll, you know, I'll cast a number of the prints, the ones that I want to cast, and then I'll go somewhere else for a couple hours, and then I'll come back to it instead of just staying yeah. in one spot. Probably a good idea, sure. So, Will, uh, here's kind of a follow-up to that do you think that when people are casting footprints and do you think that the creature is still around like watching you or probably sometimes i mean there's no way of knowing of course but i think it does happen and do we think that the creature knows good and well what you're doing or do they have a good idea could be I mean, they, they're obviously aware that you're uh, looking at their impressions in the ground. Well, and <clears throat> this goes back to when a buddy of mine about a year ago, a little over a year ago, last summer, we were up in an area on a ridge here in Oregon in the Cascades, and we found some scat, some very large scat. Later on, I pretty pretty much eliminated Bigfoot as the source. It was definitely a, just a very large black bear. But we were examining it, and he went around to the back of the truck, and this creature just projected a loud roar directly at him. I was standing in front of the truck, the engine's running. I didn't hear it. He just suddenly said, we need to get out of here now. And so what that tells me is we were under observation. We had no idea. We were examining something on the road within proximity of this thing, and it you know, took took exception to it. And it may have been hunting the bear. Oh, yeah. Good good point. You know, you happen to be by fair it was fairly fresh scout, right? It was very yeah, absolutely. It had just happened. Yeah, it could very been likely been hunting the bear. Oh, and it would have seen us as uh And got upset that you, you were there. Yeah, we were interlopers or right. competitors. Well, it uh, it achieved its objective. We left. <laughs> <laughs> so, Will, uh, kind of uh, kind of a re- reaction question to that. Uh, how often do you think that these things hunt humans, or how much is it the, the that we get in their way? Do you think? Well, I don't know when, about hunting humans, but they, I think we get in the way periodically you know especially when you get a reaction like tom's that's sort of them letting you know hey get the hell out of there <laughs> yeah tom is that what you felt <laughs> yeah i didn't feel it actually you know there's times when i kind of tongue-in-cheek but i'll say i'm the worst bigfoot researcher out there because i was standing in front of the truck i was examining this scat and i heard a noise but because the engine was running I, my brain just went to, well, gosh, it sounded like an engine uh, plane up in the air. And I looked up, there's no plane up there. So it just, no pun intended, but the, the whole concept just went over the top of my head. My buddy, on the other hand, went to the back of the truck where, you know, obviously he's not hearing the engine. And it just, he said it was like this projected at him. And he got the message loud and clear, let's get out of there. So... You know, mission accomplished as far as the creature is concerned. 
That's right. See, they they knew they tried something, it worked, and they probably we were out of there. They, they probably do it more <laughs> often than you think. So, Tom, let me let me ask you: Do you think that <laughs> had you stayed around, I mean, would the thing do like a bluff charge at you? Do you think, or um, or just some sort of escalation? I I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Will that's a good question for you? What What are your thoughts? If you don't If you don't do what they want you to do, are they going to ramp it up? Well, more than likely. I mean, it depends on how bad they want whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. You know, in that case, they may have started throwing stuff at you. Oh, that would have been interesting. Yeah, it, um, but again, uh, he growled and we were gone. (laughs) Yep, time to go. So, Will, what would be the next step that they would take with uh, throwing throwing rocks, like you said? Yeah, they probably would start throwing things, and then, you know, it, it could rain. It, again, it depends on how serious they are about you leaving the place. You know, so it just depends on, on the creatures, you know, what more they would do. Yeah, I, I, you know, that's a good point, Brian, because in this situation— if he was, and he probably was stalking that bear, and that scat was fresh, it was moist, wet, you know, uh, we had interrupted whatever he was up to. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, which was lunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, very likely. And who knows? He may have said, well, you know, the bear's not there, but guess what? But hey, you you're are. there. <laughs> like well geez maybe i don't have to work so hard after all <laughs> right <laughs> you know uh will in a situation like that um and correct me if i'm wrong but bears are solitary creatures for the most part right so do you think that that's one of the reasons why they would go after a bear because they know that its family members are not there no they're not going to worry about it. if there's multiple bears then They'd probably think more for me. You know, that's a good point, Brian. Typically, bears are, I think they're really considered solitary. But I will tell you, and this is when I was a little boy, uh, my family, we were camping uh, actually in a place called Crater Lake National Park. And we had, and I was four, four or five years old. And we had just come back from something. We, we came back into our campground. And in that southern part of Oregon, it's not real thick and brushy. You've got ponderosas, and they're very sparsely spaced apart. And, you know, you can see really well. And there's kind of a hill that would roll down to, you know, we're sort of at the base of this hill. And here comes a troop of bears. And there must have been, I don't know, seven or eight of these things, maybe nine, a whole bunch of them. And they just started a whole gaggle of these things came down and just dispersed to all the various campgrounds, ours included. Um, that's the only time I've ever seen that or heard about it, but it was a, it was a group of bears and are like, oh yeah, yeah, we know what's going on here. There's picnic tables and food on those. It has nothing to do with Bigfoot, just has to do with bears. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just in general though, uh, we'll um, these things, like, 
we we talked about this before, but they're they're not solitary, right? They they, they live in families. Well, they do, Correct. but they'll sometimes they'll hunt in groups, sometimes they'll hunt individually. So they kind of separate at times. At times, yeah. Well, that brings up another good point. And will we've talked about the sentries, and typically you you feel that oftentimes the sentries are the juveniles. Yeah, a lot of times they are, and that's that's based on reports that we get from witnesses. So, at some somewhere in that group, this this has always kind of fascinated me. Somewhere in there, and it's probably very cagey, would be the alpha male, the big one, right? And I've often wondered how would you go, <clears throat> you know, how you know. I'm just wondering in relationship, and I, I'm. I don't even know if this is a question, but how would you go find the alpha male if you wanted to? You know, you'd need a. How would you find the alpha? I wouldn't even try, <laughs> to be honest. Well, you could go up and introduce yourself and. And you be know. lunch. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the problem too with the alphas, you're you're going to have to get through the the sub groupings there, the other individuals. Yeah, and that's probably look, not going to be successful. If you look how gorillas and chimps are in their groups, you know, the, the alpha oftentimes will defend the group. It could be the same thing with these creatures, but, you know, you're, you're, you've got group dynamics going on, so you're going to have problems. So, Will, uh, let me ask on, on that point. Um, how long would it take the sentry to communicate back to the the alpha male that's that says hey this is good ground for hunting um like how long would that process take well the ju well the, the sentry's not going to be pointing out to the rest of the group about hunting they're they're on the lookout for dangers to the group uh the alpha probably determines what areas are hunting in so would the alpha go in after the sentry to no, investigate? They'd probably go in first. Oh, okay, okay. So here's a question from Danny. It's somewhat related to this, and that is, um, Danny wants to go camping into an air into a campground. It's been closed, but it I got I guess it's projected to be opened in spring of twenty two. So next spring. Um, he wants to know what can he do to increase his chances, I guess, of, of you know, finding these things. Uh, he said there's <laughs> freshly burned areas nearby, and then there's some meadows and high ground and that sort of thing. Oh, boy. Um, well, you go in there by yourself, you, you got a shot, but I, I wouldn't yeah. would not recommend it. No. Well, and again, it goes to the three things that we talked about. Number one, you got to go where they are. You got to know where they are mm -hmm. and go with a group. Yeah, just because <laughs> just because there's a campground near an area that was burnt, et cetera, doesn't mean the creatures are there. And there's a lot of factors that go into that. So, Yeah, very good point. So... It's, uh, you know, it's not always an easy thing to go out and find these things. No, it isn't. So, Will, on that point, too, because I know that a lot of people that are listening probably want to go out and find these things. But at the same time, it's probably not a good idea because 
uh, you know, you never know what you're going to find, and um, it might not just always be the best option. Well, and that's true. I mean, there are a lot of people that want, they want me to say, okay, this is how you go out and find them. But I'm not going to do that because it would be the same thing as saying, oh, I want to go out and find a grizzly bear and have this experience until it eats you. You know, it's it's on, on the same par. It's not a good thing, and I'm not going to put people in danger that way. Even when we go, we're extremely cautious and we're armed. So it's not a situation where, um, in fact, just a few weeks ago when we were in Oregon, you know, we, we got in a situation where... Uh, they were trying to lure us into a bad spot, and and we left the area very quickly. You know because it's very easy, and you know Tom, you you know which one I'm talking about. It was two a.m. Oh, yeah. and and we'd been hearing noises up there and vocals, and um, our guy with us that's uh, we just won't well we won't mention him um, said we needed to go. He's knows what he's talking about, so. Um, and it was a democratic decision. Everybody agreed instantly. Yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't anything that was. Oh, let's stand around and talk about this. No, it was. Everybody was right now. Let's go, because they can push a tree over and block you in. And we were way up there, so uh, and going out on foot was not an option. Yeah. No. 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 We would not have. We wouldn't be having this conversation. And and those ugly kind of situations they develop very very quickly. It's not like. Oh, something happens. You got ten minutes to sit around and pontificate about it. It's like right now, things happen very quickly. It was a yeah, very, we were, very fluid situation. Yeah, it was, and and everybody sensed we were right at the threshold of, you know, they were above us. They were, they were, they were on either side of us. Mm-hmm. They're in front of us, and you know, to the to the left, depends which way we're facing. But they were actually behind us as well. Yeah. So they were. It was their turf. It was too. It was. We felt that was they were trying to lead us into an ambush situation, so we got out of there quickly. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And based on the history yeah. of that location, that was very likely that's what was going on. Yes. Yeah. So it all goes back to, well, we can't get any bears tonight, but look at this. Yeah. Looky here. <laughs> <laughs> We have, we have some idiots out there, and now gonna, they're going to be tasty. <laughs> right. The next vocal would have been, mmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went back in there to that exact same spot a week later, and it was interesting because, you know, down on the downslope where we were here, every once in a while you hear a twig crunch. And I'm telling you, these things, and Will, I don't have to tell you, they're very stealthy. There would just be a very subtle snap or a branch brushing or something. They're not, you know, this wasn't like something just tromping through the woods. They were no, they, they were sneaking up on us. They're expert at what they do. Otherwise, they wouldn't survive. Yeah. You know, animals in the wild just don't go smashing around like they're idiots. Um, they're very stealthy, and especially around us because we're we're very dangerous to wildlife, and they all know that. So, especially around people, they're going to be extremely stealthy. That's actually a really good point because I would imagine that they were analyzing the situation. They're they're evaluating. Sure, they uh, our group. Yeah, yeah. They they want to test to see, you know, what's the threat. They want to see what's sure, going that on. Makes sense. They were trying, probably trying to count heads. They were trying to see, 
you know, gather as much intelligence as they could about us. Yeah, and what are the odds? How much, what kind of a risk is, uh, are we going to encounter and, charging these guys? And we know that area has a much larger group than what's typical, so. Well, we had, remember, we were at, we were miles away at another location, same, same ridge line, but they were doing the same thing, and we finally kind of decided to leave there, and we ended up in this the spot where we were at. It was just pure canopy. Mm-hmm. I mean, pitch black forest canopy. Right, right. Well, what do we so, have in the way of questions? Well, um, okay. So Ray wants to know if uh, if these creatures have ever been found outside of wilderness areas. So for example, in maybe rural or rural suburbs um yes now it doesn't mean they're living there they'll they'll approach those areas you know in search of food easy food around you know rural areas in fact right that was my next where i had my first encounter that was a rural area Uh, okay so you actually had other houses and stuff in it was it a neighborhood or just kind of a well it was a it's a collection of farms or at least it was in those days in that area uh there's some neighborhoods built there now but that's that's a fairly recent advent so but back then you know typically um you know we had our farm was small it was only 10 acres but a lot of them in the area were 25 acre in size and so they were you know they were spread out pretty good a lot of timber did you have, was it anywhere near uh, a national forest or some large forested area where they can like duck in and duck out and no. grab the food? No, but it wasn't that far from, um, you know, the Puyallup River. So we were only about, as the crow flies, about four miles from the river. Okay, and, and that's kind of chump change. And there was a railroad things. line that was right close to us too that it was little or no used. Uh, back in those days, back in the 70s. It was used occasionally, but not very often. It would haul timber. And that's, you know, easy access. And there were sightings along that railroad line. In fact, that's where we found the, the intestines and the tracks in 1972. Right, 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 right. And you had mentioned something interesting just recently that you had these huge apple trees in your yard, and one of them was like an everbearing or a winter Oh yeah, apple? they were they were different seasons on those apples. Um, we had, then they were big trees; they were about a hundred years old. And um, you know, I mean, the, the trunk was two foot plus thick on those trees. Wow. And and some of the tree, some of the trees, or a couple of trees, would produce you know early summer, fall, and then there was a one that was a winter apple that wouldn't produce till like around December. Well, you know, you think about it, and how many times, you know, there may have been many times that these creatures had come into your backyard or front yard or whatever it was and taken, you know, they were there to get the apples. Oh, I'm sure, especially before we moved there. I don't think anybody lived there for a long time. Yeah, and so you just happened to be at the right place at the wrong time. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> right. And we also had cherry trees and a pear tree out in the pasture, so... Oh, yeah. yeah. Hello. Yeah, Come we on had, now. <laughs> we had fruit trees and we had a little pond. Well, there were ponds in the area. 
you know, our neighbors had ponds too, so they had water, and there was, you know, all the animals that live around those water holes. Um, you know, there was there was lots of wildlife in the area, so I mean, even even elk would come down and eat with the cattle occasionally. So lots of deer or coyotes. There was lots of stuff around there. So, well, how often have you gone back there? Well, whenever I go visit family, I'll I'll drive by the old place sometimes, you know, and and of course they're at the house and they cut the apple trees down and and the cherry trees are gone. So, and there's just a lot of people around there now, so nothing is back in that area. I don't believe. You know, I, I kind of a on a humorous note. You know, where I live, I have a creek in the backyard and an apple tree. And the apples, you know, they fall on the ground. You get the windfalls this time of year. And then they ferment. And then we get the the nutria and the possums and whatever, raccoons, back there at 2 in the morning eating the fermented apples. And then you hear them getting into fights or squabbles (laughs) or something. (laughs) I just, I couldn't help but wondering if maybe the Bigfoot was like, hey, if we wait one long long enough these are you know they kind of ferment and wow you know (laughs) you know i don't know i've never heard of anything like that but you never know right right (laughs) so so will you you wouldn't be up for meeting those two creatures that you saw before if they were to welcome you back there (laughs) oh hell no (laughs) (laughs) well somebody that we've had on the show in the past and somebody that he knows here in Oregon, down on the coast, had a had a uh, their retirement home. It was their dream home, and they'd had it for thirty years. And I guess the the guy was walking around. He walked around the barn, and right there in front of him was one of these things looking at him. And you know they called the uh, you know the county deputies, and the deputy came out and said, "Oh yeah, this is uh, we get reports like this pretty frequently." And <clears throat> from what I was told, is the house promptly went up on the market. Yeah, and I've heard of a few times where that's happened. Yeah, and they're they're motivated sellers, and so, well, what about the you had interviewed a gal? This is before I joined your program, but, um, and I don't remember her name, but she grew up in your area and you did like four interviews with her. And I thought that she said that they had bought the house at her parents thought they got it at below market value or something right, like right, that. Right. Yeah. And now we know why that could very well be. I mean, you know, who knows, right? Yeah. You just, you want to get out from under there. You're like, I'm done. And some of the things that she talked about were, you know, she's in her living room and this thing's looking through the living room window at her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she turned around and was standing right there, so. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And that was kind of, wasn't that sort of in a little neighborhood? There's a couple other little houses around there? Yeah, it actually wasn't far from where we went to high school. And, uh. You know, and then, I mean, you think, well, high school, yeah, it's in an urban area. No, that was, um, it was in the middle of a field. <laughs> there wasn't anything around. In fact, the, the joke was they, they called it cow pie high. We did, the kids did, right? Because it was out in the middle <laughs> of a pasture. <laughs> Just a little joke there, but we did call it that. Uh, you know, that was the joking term for the school. But uh, yeah, she, <laughs> she lived not far from that. 
and there just wasn't um, there just wasn't a lot around there. Well, and she had a terrifying experience, as I recall, where she was, I think, going from one house to the other, and she just took a little shortcut through the woods and had an encounter. It's something like that. Yeah, she ran into a, a travel trailer they had out there, and, and, it, and, of course, it shook the hell out of the trailer while she was in it. And Yeah. Well, we've heard that before, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it was That's it was very reminiscent of Jerry's. The Bowman the uh, story, right? Well, no, no, I'm thinking of Jerry we had on recently. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, that's what happened with his travel trailer. Right. Yeah, and I th- I'm trying to remember, but I thought I heard somewhere, I don't know if it was the interview or somewhere, that his dog was so scared it was underneath uh, one of the bunks or the bed or something like that, and... Actually, the 911 dispatch could hear the dogs as it's shaking. Its foot was thumping the floor so loud and the toenails were clicking that they could hear it right. <laughs> over, the, over the phone. Well, and even during that 911 call, you could, you could hear the creatures outside growling. Uh, I could hear it on three occasions. Yeah. Yeah, that would be absolute. And think about it. You're trapped, you're inside this thing, and you have no idea where they're at except when you see the eyeballs go scanning by those tiny windows. Yeah, and where are you going to go? Exactly. And if they rip open one of the, the doors or the side, the siding on the thing, well, there you go. Yeah, not a pleasant uh, prospect. And it, it, it it's interesting because... He really wasn't in the wilderness. He was just kind of out in a rural spot. But, I mean, it was, you know, I guess there was farms and whatnot around. So, Yeah, you don't have to be in the wilderness to encounter these things. So that's a comforting thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, do we, have, so, do we have more listener questions? Well, okay. So this is a question we've been asked several times. And one of our one of our listeners wants to know, okay, we know they exist. The creatures exist. What are they? Well, I mean, there's no way of really, you know, putting a, an answer to that. I mean, they're they're a large primate. They're still unrecognized by science. Um, beyond that, you know, they're not a monkey, uh, so they would fit more in the family that we belong to. So they're a hominin. And that brings up another question. We've talked about it in the past, but, you know, it seems like academia has sort of matured to the point where it's not quite as scrappy and as hungry as it was maybe 150 years ago or even 100 years ago where they had a intense curiosity. Um, what are your thoughts on that? In terms of the creature's behaviors? No, in terms of academia's uh, response to investigating these things, it's like now everybody wants to either, you know, if you're an adjunct professor, you want to get tenure, uh, you want to protect your position, and there's just not that strong drive to go out and investigate a controversial topic. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, academia is still controlled largely by you know, people trying to move upwards in their career, and, and it can still be kind of a career killer if, you know, you want to go out and just 
look for Sasquatch. Um, but there are some who are more open to it now and willing to say, okay, um, you know, it, but they're waiting to see more good hard evidence, which, you know, there's lots of evidence out there, but, um, you know, it goes kind of to the difficulty of finding it. You know, you I mean, they need to be taken out where there's repeatability. And oftentimes with this subject, that's very difficult to come by. Yeah, it is. And I think also um, people that I've chatted with on this topic that are academics will try to come up with counter arguments or not even academics. Uh, anybody for that matter will say, you know, you, you talk about some of the evidence you've seen and and they'll come up with, well, I think it's just and then they'll have some sort of an explanation for it. You know, like the footprints. Well, that was just somebody out there, you know, with a, a stamp, you know, with a prosthetic foot or whatever, or, you know, the tree breaks and all that sort of thing. They just, it's very dismissive. Well, there's, you know, there's still people constantly arguing over the Patterson film. And to be honest, I'm kind of tired of all that myself. I mean, you know, Rene DeHinden brought up a good point to me years ago. He says, you know, and he was at the time because he knew he knew all the principles personally. You know, it was much closer to that whole situation. So he did a lot of investigating. He said, I, I tried for 20 years to prove that it was fake. And he says, in the end, I couldn't do it. So I don't understand all the arguing that continues today. What's the point? Well, and a lot of the arguing comes from and the the argue the argument points are they're old they're very old they're very stale they've been disproven years ago and <clears throat> they can very easily be disproven so yeah i don't know well and there, there are certain angles a good friend you know mark um mentioned recently that you know he talked about all the the shady dealings that roger patterson did you know whether he did or not is irrelevant because what's on the film is real you know there there are certain aspects of that that just cannot be dismissed so regardless of the people involved what's on the film is the real creature so right exactly yeah and it's not the creature's fault that uh possibly roger patterson had some shady deals so well, and I mean, and people. <laughs> the, the film doesn't lie. Everybody tries to say, well, it was Bob Hieronymus in, in the suit. Okay, you know, we talked about that with Bill Munns. Bill delved into that. You know, we had the two part with Bill. You know, if you're interested in hearing that, go back to those episodes. Uh, it's on the episode list. You can find him easily in there. But in a nutshell, he said, well, you know, there were. Roger probably did film Hieronymus in a suit. You know, and Hieronymus, like he said, a lot of actors never see themselves, you know, in the suit. They don't see what they look like. Maybe today they do with mirrors, but back then they wouldn't wouldn't have done that. So when he saw the film, he thought he was looking at himself when he wasn't. Uh, right. And so when he, that's why he passed the polygraph, right? So, well, and, and a suit like that could not be created back in those days. Yeah, I don't think it could today. Well, Disney had the best. They had the best special effects, and Bill was a suit maker for Hollywood. He made the the suit for a Swamp Thing, for example, for that movie. And when he talked about the joint locations with the suit and all that stuff, they have to li had to line up. Um, 
you know, and, and the fact that it was seamless. And, and like you mentioned, you know, we talked to uh, a witness yesterday um, where it would have to, how it would have to have fit the actor. And it just wasn't possible in 1967. And, Will, I'll also say, too, that when they analyzed the film in specific detail, they could actually see spaces between Patty's toes. And they said that back then they could not make a suit that, that did something like that. I mean, like you can actually see spaces between her, uh, her toes. Well, when it lifts its foot up, there's one of the frames where the foot's clearly yeah. visible. And the picture I have for Michigan, it shows the exact same movement. So the walking style is the same many years apart in different regions. You're bringing up a real good point, and that's what I was just about to mention, and that is there's a misconception that the Patty film is the only photographic evidence of this thing, and that is absolutely patently untrue. There are people that have uh, photographed this thing and and gotten videos that are, you know, I mean, they're not numerous. I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, there are a lot of fake things, especially if you see something on YouTube, it's, it's very likely it's fake. Um, but because the people who have legitimate stuff don't go out and show it off, you know, that's not their reaction at all. Usually they want to hide it and and not talk about it. Right, exactly. But I think there's probably more than a handful. The one thing that the Patterson film has is it was, you know, it was done with film, not video. So it's uh, there's no way to digitally edit it or no easy way of doing that. And also it was at a time when it was the only thing out there. Well, and here's the point to bring up too, if we're talking about that, and, and I don't want to delve into the Patterson stuff a whole bunch, but our good friend who's a judge, 52 years on the bench, you know, he brought up some very good points. He said, if you were to take something into court like that, number one, you have two eyewitnesses you know, you can say what you want about Patterson, but Bob Gimlin was very credible, always has been. Um, you have physical evidence in, in the way of footprints, and you have a film. Now, on the counter-argument, you have nothing. So, in a court of law, you know, the, the preponderance or the evidence is in support of it being authentic. Right, and he, he brought up another good point. He said there are thousands if not tens of thousands of credible witnesses he goes that's a lot of liars it is (laughs) and and people say well you know these are just stories but it's witness testimony which is admissible in a court of law yeah and and will the the thing to uh, mention about that is that a lot of these people that are witnesses that have had encounters they weren't asking for this. Uh, they just happen to have encounters that are legit, and um, it's not like they're trying to be famous or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of times it's... Yeah, that's a good point. It, it's very grudging that for them to come forward and talk about it. Many, many times we get that far more, I would say probably nine out of ten times, where the witnesses are really... Like, we, we'll get a lot of people... I, in fact, I, I want to thank people for... Uh, the great response we got recently why I put a uh, question out on YouTube uh, we had some openings and we always have a few openings but we we definitely had some openings in the calendar here recently and we got quite a few responses 
and uh, and always out of the responses. Let's say we get ten responses, we might only get three people that will actually record because the people are so reticent about talking about what it is they experienced. Right, they're reluctant. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, on that note, I want to say that if you do want to talk about it, or if you don't want to come in the air, but you just want to share your experience, you can do that at questions at creekdevil.com. And you can also just go to creekdevil.com, our webpage, and there's a link in there where you can click, and it takes you to our, uh, to our email, which is questions at creekdevil.com. And I also want to thank uh, Fred and Annie, our latest Patreon subscribers. Thank you very much. Your support is helpful. And if you want to, if you like what you hear and you want to support this channel, um, just go to patreon.com forward slash creekdevil and uh, you can support us that way. You can also contact me directly if you want to at williamjabning at yahoo.com. Also, I started putting the show on Spotify, uh, Fred Sieber. Well, was interested in, and asked about that so I did that I uh, just started uploading shows on there so uh, each week from now on I'll be sure to uh, post a show there also well fellas we're just about out of time any final thoughts or, or questions you want to bring up I just want to thank everybody for uh, listening and uh, we'll see you guys next week Right. yeah just to echo that uh, yeah so thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you next week all right folks again if there's a witness out there that would be interested in talking with us you know get a hold of us and stay tuned for the next segment welcome this collection of three stories is being brought to you by William Jeffning and is being narrated by Jim Sower. These stories come to us from California. The first is Eureka, California, 1896. The second is Sasquatch and the Edwards Air Force Base. And the third, Mysterious Shaver Lake. Story number one. Eureka, California, 1896. Interesting old story. In 1965, my mother's friend, an old dear from near Sacramento, showed her a letter. It was transcribed by her daughter, who found some of the usage and language amusing, and she presented it to her grammar school class. No one knows where the original is, it was found pressed into the pages of an old dictionary, but has since been lost or misplaced. Enjoy it. If you use it in your publication, please just refer to me as Jack. I enjoy the fruits of your research and wish you many, many years of success in your endeavor. Regards, Jack, Lakota Sioux, Guide, Outfitter, Guide in our great Northwest. A few weeks back, my friend Jake McCoy and I were in witness to the following of accounts. We were well spent after an uncommon day of awful heat cutting timber. 
Our days in these woods were usually of a cool and foggy nature, with the heat rarely becoming to our discomfort. After our supper, Jake and I were of a mind to sit by the creek. With the next day being Sunday, we were able to enjoy an evening of our own doings. We were smoking and having coffee when we smelt something like a dead animal left to rot in the heat. I remember once coming upon a shot bear that his hunter could not trail, and it had laid and rotted for four days, by my opinion. It gave an awful stench, which would give many a disagreeable stomach. This scent was in similarity to that. We saw nothing out of the expected, but could hear a rustling in the brush just across the creek. Being August, the creek was not more than four or five goodly strides from this bank across. A man could start to a run and jump fully across it, if he were determined of doing so. We saw a large man coming through the trees, and Jake stood up and asked, What in creation it was? As I had just been looking towards the sun, my eyes did not give a clear viewing of what it was. I rubbed my eyes to have a look, and I was not in knowledge of what I saw. It appeared to be a bear at first, but we had not seen any bears in this area, and it walked as a man would on its two legs. If it was a man, he was covered with a dark hair, and long like the mane of a horse, and it was dark brown in color. Jake yelled out, Who goes there? But this man-beast did not make a response. It stopped in its tracks and looked at us from a distance of about seventy paces. We stood, but were froze as we wondered of the type of creature we were in witness to. After just a moment or two, it turned and walked back up the hill in great long strides and with unexpected ease and swiftness. We heard it climb up the hill, and then all was silent. We noticed it walk for twenty or so paces, all of them upright. It had arms like a man's, but of a much bigger size, and greater length than a man's. It must have been of great strength, as we determined it to be greater in height than seven feet. We said nothing to our supervisors, as loafing and insubordination would get you often looking for employment in other parts. Too many men wanted too little work. So, saying anything that would attract attention to yourself in a manner not deemed proper was not born of a good idea. However, an Indian named Joe, who frequented our camp to vend his wares, had told of a mountain giant uncommon to these woods. I explained what we saw, and he said his people often saw these giants. However, he said that most would see them in late night or darkness. The giants did not care to be seen, and were quiet and careful to be hidden. Joe said that he could find tracks all along the creeks and rivers of a morning, I swear the events written here is the truth, and happened with us being of a sound mind and in sobriety. L. T. Mills, 19 August of 1896, Eureka, California, as dictated to L. B. Small, Clerk. This ends the reading of the first story. 
This next story is entitled Sasquatch and the Edwards Air Force Base Surveillance, written by Doug Trapp. The sun dropped quickly behind the desert rock piles, revealing a deep red glow to the western sky as Corey Rudolph and I made camp at the east end of Avenue J in Palmdale one spring night in 1977. We had been visiting the area as often as possible in response to several credible Bigfoot reports in this California desert. To the east was nothing but dark black sky with thousands of stars and periodic meteors whizzing by. Our objective was twofold. One, to observe all we could during the night, and two, to get away from the Los Angeles rat race. We had been driving through the areas north of the mountains, separating the Los Angeles area from the desert, in search of clues and people to interview who claimed to have encountered the desert Sasquatch. Through the next three years, Corey and I, and sometimes myself with my faithful red-tailed hawk, Nixon, we gathered as much information on desert Sasquatch activity as we could. In many cases, the witnesses told very similar tales of large, hair-covered, man-like apes observed crossing the highway, or looking in their windows at their homes, usually after midnight. Through these witnesses, we slowly became aware that the military, just north of Lancaster, California, at Edwards Air Force Base, had been witness to these desert man-beasts for several years. We finally made contact with three different military security officers, all of which did not know of the others, who provided us with information relating to what the Air Force knew about these animals. Before I continue with this, I must inform the reader that these three men were willing to discuss this with us only because we promised to never reveal their names or ranks, and if we did, they would deny everything. Because I believe in keeping promises, I will comply with their request, but will refer to them only by rank since I do not believe that their status at the time would indicate or reveal their true identity, thereby keeping my promise. I will also add that I have spoken to five additional ex-military officers who were once stationed at Edwards Air Force Base, and they all claim that what the first three revealed was accurate, and that not much has changed there since the 1970s. The first I interviewed was a lieutenant in charge of security in the sector of Edwards Air Force Base near Rogers Dry Lake. He was primarily responsible for supervising the surveillance activity from sunset to sundown from 1972 to 1975 when he was then transferred to Germany, then retired. This gentleman explained to me that the base security was primarily involved with monitoring for unauthorized entry to the base by curious seekers. The base was highly involved with classified secret aircraft testing at the time, and there were many curious people trying to take photos or just see these things. In addition, the base had a very high level of UFO activity, or, as he put it, alien spacecraft. In fact, he made it clear that these craft were not from Earth, and that the Air Force knew very little about them. 
when any unauthorized people or alien aircraft entered his perimeter, he was to report it to the higher command and observe. All of his personnel had top security clearance and were to discuss nothing of what they saw. He further described some of these craft to me, but I was not very interested at the time. While they were conducting surveillance one night, always using starlight scopes and motion detectors spread throughout the base, one of the guards reported an infiltration in his perimeter. When asked for details, the guard described a very tall man, but not really a man. Perplexed by such a report, he decided to drive to the location and talk to the guard, perhaps thinking the man had lost his marbles. When he arrived, a wide-eyed guard met him and repeated his story. The lieutenant began to scan the desert for the intruder and soon spied him, or it. Through the starlight scope, he could clearly see that this was not a man. It was a very tall, hair-covered, ape-like man walking through the desert. He said the animal appeared to be looking at the desert floor in search of something. The animal was about 500 yards distant, but the scope was very powerful and tripod-mounted, so it could be observed clearly. Both men continued to observe the animal as it wandered around almost aimlessly. He then reported to his superiors of the activity and was told to keep the animal in sight. This was no problem as the animal remained in the area. About five minutes later, a helicopter was heard approaching the area. Then it was seen coming in fast from the east. They continued to observe the animal which continued its activity. The helicopter came in over a rock pile, then the animal spooked. It looked at the helicopter, turned, and ran like a deer around a rock pile and out of sight. The helicopter searched the area, but never found the animal. The two men could hardly believe what they had seen. The next day the lieutenant reported to the command post of the previous night's activity. The command told him that these animals had been seen on the base before, and the public knew them as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. The command explained that they were concerned that these animals may be related to the alien craft, and that all such reports must remain top secret. He was told to continue to observe and report, but not to intervene or disturb the animals until the command determined what they were. The lieutenant had heard of Bigfoot before, but not in the desert. He had always thought that this was some sort of fable or hoax. But he knew what he saw, and now knew that they were real. Through the following years, he and his crew observed the Sasquatches on the base several times. By 1975, they had sophisticated equipment, including video surveillance cameras mounted in key areas. He then explained to me that they had videotaped these animals several times, but the tapes were classified and held under top security at all times. By the time he left Edwards, they had learned very little about these creatures, but his feeling was that they were not UFO-related, but biological living beings. The second officer I interviewed was a major before he too retired in 1978. 
He had served at Edwards Air Force Base from 1970 through 1978 and was in charge of one of the command posts on the north end of the base. He too explained that they were primarily interested in UFOs and aliens. In fact, it was through his words that I first heard the term EBE, which is apparently the military term for aliens or extraterrestrial biological entities. It is only in recent years that this term has been coined in UFO books relating to the military UFO cover-up. In any case, the Major confirmed what the Lieutenant had told me, but added that these creatures also found their way into the secret underground tunnels that run under Edwards. Although the use and existence of these tunnels was classified, he told me about them knowing that their importance was a moot subject to me. He said that they had surveillance cameras in the tunnels and had, in fact, videotaped the Sasquatches as they wandered through them. He said that they were not concerned with the Sasquatches on the base because they had learned that they were not related to EBE activity and that they were certain that they were simply undiscovered animals. When I asked why they had not captured or killed one in order to prove the existence to the world, he returned that they could not reveal anything that happened on the base. He said that if they were to admit that these creatures often wandered around on the base, the public would lose confidence in their ability to keep the base secure. This, in turn, would give people the idea that they could do the same. Since there was so much secret work continuing on the base, it was not in their interest to discuss the Sasquatches with the public. They wanted to keep people out, not encourage them to visit in search of Sasquatches. They already had enough problems with UFO seekers or those wanting to get a peek at the secret aircraft. The third man was a security grunt. That is what he termed himself. He claimed to have seen these desert Sasquatches through starlight scopes on scorers of occasions. This man was only about 19 years old, but extremely military in his self-presence. He called me, Sir, until I asked him not to. He told me that he had seen a couple of Sasquatches that stood over 10 feet high, had seen obvious females, one with a young one walking with her, and once saw a group of five Sasquatches walking together, all over six feet tall, with the tallest about eight feet tall. They were fully hair-covered, except the palms of their hands, and the base of their feet, and their face. He said their face resembled an ape with very small eyes, a flat nose, and ape-like lips. The arms were long and slung down to their knees. He said their feet were like ours, without an arch, as they had tracked them through the desert several times. When I asked him about the surveillance videos, he told me that he knew of them, but was not involved in that. He said only officers were allowed to videotape the creatures or UFOs. Cameras were not allowed on the base in the hands of the grunts. He said that he felt very privileged to have seen these animals with such clarity because he knew there were several like himself that would do anything to see one. However, he suggested that these animals were not as rare as people assumed, 
but they are very shy and almost strictly nocturnal. They could be photographed, given the right opportunity, but those opportunities were rare because these creatures are very good at remaining concealed, even in the desert. He told me that the reason they were on the base was that they knew that they would not be harmed. He thought that somehow they could feel danger or even pick up on human thoughts. Since the officers and grunts on Edwards were ordered not to harm or intervene with the creatures, they could feel this vibe and felt protected. Some of these animals, of course, wander around outside of the base, but these animals are always watching their backs, he explained. To conclude this report, I should advise that several sources have told me in recent years that the desert Sasquatches are still being watched at Edwards Air Force Base. In fact, one officer recently told me that the base security actually appreciates the presence of the Sasquatch there since they give the officers some needed entertainment. Then a question came to mind. Could the EBEs be just as interested in the Sasquatches as they are of other base activities? The officer stopped for a moment, thinking, then said simply, Perhaps. Written by Douglas E. Trapp, Dallas, Texas. This ends the second reading. This brings us to the last of the three stories. Mysterious Shaver Lake, Fresno County, California. Many sightings, four in summer 2012. Additional sightings occurred in September and other updates. Sierra Range, June 2012, around 9 o'clock p.m. Not quite sure how to type this, 9 o'clock p.m., stone sober. While driving, I saw up to my right, illuminated only for a couple seconds, as I was towing downhill in a corner turn doing 15 miles per hour, what I believed to fit all descriptions of a Bigfoot. But as I turned the corner, I lost sight. What I saw with the time that I had was half a stride, pause, look and turn, and beginning to stride away. If it wasn't a Bigfoot, then it was a slim bear striding around on his rear legs with all the dimensions of Bigfoot, or maybe a seven-foot-tall, 400-pound ex-football player playing with scaring people, and he got me for a minute or two. In my mind, a lot taller than a man, and his bulk was proportional to Bigfoot. No way for it to be anything else. I know my shapes. The area was hilly, located at the end of Highway 168. Four-lane highway, next down to two lanes. Small plateau type. Small meadow. Above roadway elevation is 3,000 or so. I notified no rangers. June 24th, 2012. The aforementioned report prompted this response. A woman reported that her daughter's boyfriend had a sighting in the region of Shaver Lake. In part, she reported, he saw the Bigfoot in his headlights, crouched down next to the road. As he hit his brakes and came to almost a full stop, the Bigfoot stood up straight, strolled off, then 
ran up the hill and into the trees. He had an unobstructed view for about five to ten seconds. He is a mountain resident that has hunted bear, and swore unequivocally that it was not a bear or a man in a suit. It was huge, with a huge chest, and did not move like a man, and that its strides were very long. I believe that he is telling the truth. He's just not a BS kind of guy that would make this up. His mom reported that he called her almost hysterical over what he saw. Saturday, June 30th, 2012. Carla and Manuel M. filed report that was not a physical sighting. While honeymooning at a rental cabin on Shaver Lake, California, they heard vocalizations being emitted from one side of the lake to the other. Manny M. wrote that the sounds were whoops, like whoop, 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 in a series of three sets that started on one side of the lake and then returned whoop, whoop, whoop from the other side of the lake. This went on for several hours after midnight, three nights in a row. On their last night there, Carla woke Manny up and ushered him out onto their bedroom porch that was overlooking the lake. The two of them heard a baby crying that lasted three or four minutes. The sound was that of an infant, and it was a frantic cry, and very loud, echoing across the lake. It also emanated from deep within the forest area on the opposite side of Shaver Lake. As they returned to their bedroom, the whoops started up again. Carla said it was very creepy, and that it prevented them from exploring the rocky terrain and much of the lakefront while they honeymooned there. Wednesday, July 11, 2012. Two forestry workers for Southern California Edison, the company that owns Shaver Lake, stopped to eat their lunch on the banks of Shaver Lake. As they were getting up to head back to their utility truck, parked on the frontageway of Highway 168, they both stopped cold as a reddish-colored Bigfoot walked out of the trees and into the lake. One of the witnesses who filed the report said his visual was too quick to accurately judge its height other than to say it was a pretty big fella with a heavy coat of tangled light-looking hair all over. He said it surfaced and swam toward the eastern side in what looked like a very strong dog paddle kind of stroke. He was really moving. The two men stood there dumbfounded as the Bigfoot swam out of sight. Additional sighting, 2009. The SCE informant in the above report said that when he mentioned the sighting to his daughter's music teacher, she related another story told to her that took place also at Shaver Lake in 2009. In any case, it was a second-hand report that told of three campers who were driven out of their tents in the middle of the night by a screaming Mimi that unstaked their tents and attempted to drag them off, tent and all, into the night somewhere. They fled for their lives and did report it to forestry the next day. It was also reported on the Internet. Not sure where. The informant was asked if he knew what the forestry official did. 
and he said apparently nothing, and indicated they were either mistaken or it was a bear. The music teacher had said, though, we know black bears do not behave that way, and we have no grizzlies in California. It leaves one to wonder what there is left in the forest that would rip up the tent stakes and heave tents with people inside around the campsite. Bears just don't behave that way. Of interest in that story was that the campers kept a high campfire going at night and that the fire did not deter the attack by the Sasquatches. The music teacher said there were two of them, maybe even a third, but nobody stuck around to find out. This isn't the first recording of the campsite attack. The other was in Colorado in the San Juan Mountains. But around Shaver Lake and nearby communities, everyone has a story to tell about Bigfoot. Shaver Lake History, Surrounding Areas The cast of Finding Bigfoot television series was in Shaver Lake in March of 2012, interviewing witnesses in a town hall meeting event. At that meeting, Ken Gentry said his group had a huge rock hurled at them from 300 feet away, on the top of a ridge, and saw it as it was launched. They were hiking near three rivers, not far from Shaver Lake area. It was a very large rock. One of the athletic guys on our crew, Billy, picked it up and tried to throw it, but he couldn't throw it even 25 feet. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I would have had a hard time believing it actually happened, Gentry said. October 2012 Three middle-aged men go missing near Shaver Lake region. A backpacker. His car was found near Shaver Lake and a second hiker went missing in the general area of the Sierra National Park, where there were three or more separate Bigfoot sightings summer of 2012. Two hikers were found, but Larry Kahn, 53, is still missing, 11-6-12. Another sighting contains a lengthy bunch of extraneous information about the surroundings, and little about three large cinnamon-brown humanoid figures that moved through a stand of spruce trees. The nearest town? Shaver Lake. Shaver Lake Small Town Magazine filed this article, written by Jolene Polyak, in the summer, fall, of 2012. Jolene attended the Shaver Lake Town Hall meeting. Southeast of Shaver Lake, is great deer hunting, according to Bruce Decova, 51, and his hunting partner, Samuel Broderick, 46, from out of state. It is an area south of Huntington Lake, just short of Dinky Creek, off to the eastern rim of Shaver Lake. In late 2009, the two men went looking for a prime place to set up for the hunting season. In the process, Broderick was taking an armload of firewood to the nearby fire pit when he noticed not one, but two dark figures in the trees. He continued toward the fire ring, dumped the firewood, and put his hand on Decova's shoulder, whispering to him not to be obvious, but to look in that direction when he could. He whispered that they were being watched by what he thought might be a couple of Bigfoot. Decova, a veteran trophy hunter, had heard such stories, but thought Bigfoot was imagined. He went about setting up their tent 
and then cleaned off his Ray-Ban sunglasses so he could look around without his eyes giving him away. Sure enough, there were two very tall individuals watching them, not thirty-five feet from where he was staking the tent. The pounding of the stakes echoed in the trees, but there were no other sounds to be heard. The Bigfoot made no noise. Dakova turned at that point and told Broderick that he also could see them and was amazed. To break the tension, Dakova yelled over to Broderick, Do they understand English? Broderick broke into a nervous laughter like, <laughs> and began nervously singing the state fight song. Dakova joined in as they edged toward the rifles laying on the ground. For his part, Broderick was admittedly nervous, and hurriedly reached down to unzip the cover off his rifle, and loaded it just in case the two creatures came into camp. Apparently, when Broderick raised up the rifle to load it, both Sasquatch departed. The two hunters told me they did not see the creatures again, or notice anything unusual during the night. There were no screams, and no rock-throwing, and none of the usual nighttime Bigfoot antics reported by other hunters. The description of the two Bigfoot was minimal. They were in the eight-foot range, according to the height of the trees where they stood, and dark in color. Otherwise, no additional details were given. Rob Janus The behavior of the Shaver Lake Dinky Creek watchers was decidedly different from most reports from hunters, in that the two Sasquatch apparently knew what the rifle meant, even though the two hunters did not acknowledge their presence. There are reports of vocalizations in that region, and a number of recent sightings of varying color description, making Janice conclude that there might be a diverse population in that region. Janice also noted in his report that neither Broderick nor Dakova bagged a deer that trip, in fact, Broderick said he never spotted one, and even that was unusual. Update, December 29, 2012 Mosmanko 253 wrote December 28, 2012, that he and his girlfriend were riding around looking at property in the Shaver Lake area, when they decided to pull over and break out sandwiches at the dead end of Dorabella Road. He looked up, as the woman with him cried out, Look! Look! and saw a very strange sight. Heading back into the far side of the trees was a man in a furry costume. He didn't report it because he thought it was a joke until he read this page and decided to report it as a possible Bigfoot sighting that occurred on September 15, 2012. In hindsight, the witness said what he thought was a man in a costume was much too tall to be a joke. This was about 12.30 on Saturday afternoon. We were parked, eating chicken sandwiches and sharing a Diet Pepsi, when this happened. My lady friend didn't think it was a costume, but some kind of creature, because the furry part was reddish and long fur down its back and not like a hooded costume. If this was a Bigfoot the couple saw... It brings the sighting total around Shaver Lake to five in 2012. Update. Shaver Lake missing hiker Larry Kahn 
a Los Angeles-based attorney who worked at Pasinelli Shugart, has not been found as of this date, March 31, 2013. The search for the resident of Pacific Palisades was suspended in November 2012, after no trace of the man was found other than his car. Update. Hiker Matthew Hansen has been found, but no details. A report came in January 2013, but the sighting took place back in 1998. A cabin owner near Shaver Lake, California, reported hearing a pack of coyotes yipping and chirping away at something. Walking over to his window, he saw a Bigfoot carrying some kind of large feathered bird in its hand, walking up the road towards his place on Sweetgrass Road. The coyotes were jumping up, trying to bite whatever it was the creature was carrying. He called to his wife and son, and they also saw it as it walked off through the trees, down a dirt trail, which was later paved. R.C. 1998 This concludes the reading of the three stories. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is a series of stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by Jim Sower. Story number one, Australia, Bigfoot spotted in bush near Sydney, April 15, 2009. Australian News, April 2009, two backpackers on a year-long trip around Australia got the fright of their life last week while they were out trekking in the bushland in the vicinity of the township of Lura, not far from the well-known Katoomba landmark, the Three Sisters. It was early evening, and by the ladies' own admission, it was a bit late to be by themselves in the bush. Ingrid Schoen, 23, of Germany, and Addie Hansen, 22, of France, decided to head back into town when they heard the breaking of branches and loud footsteps heading towards them. Ingrid turned on her torch to light the track in front of them, and at this point they both claimed to have seen what they now describe as Bigfoot charge away into the distance. Admittedly, we did not get a close look, but we think that what we saw looked like the American Bigfoot, basically covered in hair and about two meters tall. It definitely had no clothes on and was not human. Ingrid told all-news web reporter Jaden Cassidy, we were petrified and almost lost our way back in our nervous state, Ingrid commented. The Blue Mountains is believed to be the home of a creature known as the Yowie, basically Australia's version of Bigfoot or the Yeti. There have been many recent sightings there. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, local Aboriginal tribes were certain of its existence. Aboriginal communities still living in the Blue Mountains, along with some other locals, continue to believe that the Yowie might be out there in the vast expanses of Australia's Great Dividing Range. This is the end of the first story. Story number two. BBC's Online. So Weird, Lionel's Guide. The Ape Type. They're all big, they're all hairy, they're all colossal cocktails of man, ape, bear, and occasionally goat, but they're all over the world. Yeti in the Himalayas, Sasquatch and Bigfoot in North America, 
Yaren in China, Nguoi Rung in Vietnam, and the Yowie in Australia. Most of the time they're more frightened by the spotters, but they're not always harmless. An adventurer named Bauman was working as a trapper with a friend in the Wisdom River area in Montana. One night, when Bauman got back to camp, he found his friend dead. There were huge bite marks on the body, and the man's neck had been snapped by something with far more than normal human strength. A few days before the tragedy, they had both seen a strange humanoid creature, which they reckoned was about seven feet tall. And this story was reported by President Roosevelt, so it must be true. American presidents don't lie, do they? In 1924, Al Ostman claimed to have been abducted by a whole tribe of Sasquatch. He was asleep in his sleeping bag when one of them picked him up like a rag doll and carried him away. As the creatures made no attempt to harm him, Ostman, who always kept a loaded rifle by his side when he was out alone in the wilds, did not wish to harm them. He finally got away by giving snuff to their leader and running away while the Sasquatch chief was sneezing uncontrollably. Many disturbing reports of the Yeti, or abominable snowman, a close cousin to Sasquatch and Bigfoot, have come in over the years from the Himalayas. In 1974, on a plateau 14,000 feet up near Mount Everest, 19-year-old Lakpa Sherpani was knocked unconscious as she tried unsuccessfully to defend her yaks from a yeti which killed several of them by twisting their horns until their necks were broken. This story comes to us from BBC Online. The end of story number two. Story number three. Alaska Magazine, September 1998, Volume 64, Number 7. Nathan, the Brushman, by Velma Wallace. Sasquatch, or something like it, appears in the legends of the northern Athabascan Gwich'in people as Nathan, the Brushman. Is he a myth, a monster, or a lonely man? The Nathan was held in fear and admiration, although none could swear he ever actually saw one. If someone dared say that they did, people laughed, yet... Some believed. It is said that the Natan, also called brushmen, were men who were ostracized from the group for disobeying tribal rules. The rules of the wandering Gwich'in bands were simple and stern because survival was their main concern. The rules helped the people to survive their harsh environment, but they also were social requirements meant to keep peace. Some men, and occasionally women, did not abide by the rules, so the band leaders would ask the person to leave. The condemned person usually tried to prove he could survive without the group, but isolation taught otherwise. Physically, survival was possible. Emotionally, the human craved companionship. The rejected person would find himself slipping into the guise of a Nathan. He would hover behind bushes, spying on people. If he became lonely, he tried to kidnap a woman and sometimes succeeded. Others saw brushmen as non-human, but with human appearances and magical powers. For instance, the brushman possesses the ability to use mind power to lull you to sleep and then steal your loved one. 
Even after contact with Western culture, the Gwich'in people believe that the brush man still exists. In the late 1800s, an infant was said to have been stolen by a Natan and later returned. Although the Natan was feared, he also was romanticized. As a teenager, my mother often wished that she were stolen by a Natan. My husband told of a time when he hunted above the mountains in Chandelar country, and large, dark, and dressed in skins, uh, this thing appeared from the woods and knelt down to drink water from a stream. Geoffrey called out to him, wanting to believe he was just another hunter. The startled man looked up and then ran away. Geoffrey told others, and they laughed, for what was the typical response to anyone who said that they saw a Natan? Despite people's skepticism, not long ago a sensible couple traveling down the Porcupine River spotted a man walking alongside the beach. When he heard their motor, the man disappeared into the willows. The couple searched the area, but found only moccasin tracks. Later that fall, in Fort Yukon, meat and fish that hung on drying racks were missing. People said it couldn't have been dogs because there would have been tracks, and camp robbers, gray jays, blue jays, and stellar jays, always leave a mess. Again, even in modern times, the myth of the brush man sends excitement through the heart of small Alaskan communities. Perhaps the spirits of those long ostracized and rebellious individuals still do roam the land, searching for food and companionship. Copyright, Alaska Magazine, September 1998, Volume 64, Number 7. That is the end of story number three. The Legend of Ohio's Orange-Eyed Creature, 1959. Old Orange Eyes was allegedly an 11-foot-tall, 1,000-pound Bigfoot creature that is said to live in central Ohio, on a lonely road called Lover's Lane where it stalked teenagers. The Orange Eyes creature first gained notice on March 28, 1959, when three teenagers observed a huge, hairy, orange monster rise from a ground fog at Charles Mill Reservoir, near Mansfield. Then, four years later, the beast appeared again, and this time it was witnessed by several people. Scientists were not sure where this creature lived, but it is assumed that the beast might have lived in a tunnel in Cleveland's Riverside, where it lived in peace for more than 25 years. Then, suddenly, in the 1940s and 1960s, highway construction destroyed the tunnel that Orange Eyes was alleged to be living in forcing the creature to live in a stretch of forest behind the Cleveland Zoo. Finally, a group of teenagers invaded the creature's habitat on April 22, 1968, and chased the creature armed with baseball bats, flashlights, and ropes, and went into the forest to try to capture and kill the creature, but they found no sign of the beast. June 1991, Old Orange Eyes appeared again, and this time the bees ran past two people fishing near Willis Creek, scaring the daylights out of them before disappearing. It was said the way to find this creature was on Ruggles Road near Blue Ridge, and if the creature was there, it would appear curious. Witnesses of the orange-eyed creature say that there is no monster 
just some crazy hermit or trademark feature by nailing two round orange bike reflectors to a stick, or teenagers using Christmas tree lights, flashlights, to frighten one another. Courtesy, Andy Ramirez, Saturday, June 23, 2001, 10.38 a.m. This sounds like an urban legend, and it may also remind you of the Big Head Report from Richland County, Ohio, Vintage, 1978. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Biddeford, York County, Maine, 1951. Suddenly, there he was, less than 15 feet in front of me. I am a 73-year-old man, and when I was 13 years old, I was on a holiday with my parents in Biddeford, Maine. It was a sunny, chilly day in April. I told my parents I was going for a walk along an estuary leading out to the ocean. When I came close to the flowing, chilly water, I saw a winding stream with sandbanks rising five feet in front of me. As I climbed up on one bank to look at the water a few feet in front of me, I saw a figure floating on his back coming in with the tide. I'd say we spotted each other at about the same time, so I had just stepped up onto this dune from the land side. It was four or five steps, and I was on top of the dune, looked down at the water, and there he was, right in front of me. I can easily think about that moment, and again, I had no idea what I was looking at. I could see him so clearly, even his hairs as they swirled around his body. Well, mind you, at this time of my life, I had never heard of Yetis, Bigfoot, or never read about them. I never knew they existed in my thirteen years of age. Uh, this figure had the shape of a man with grayish hair and a hairless, pinkish to reddish face with no hair on it. Although I had read about Bigfoot through those years, I never put the two together. I guess one reason was that this guy had grayish-white hair, and I guess I didn't really think he was a Bigfoot. This guy had no breasts that I could see. Only while reading about Bigfoot recently did I notice that uh, occasional you'd see a whitish-gray one that would appear. So I got excited, and I had to write about it. The rest of his body had hair which moved as the water washed around him. He was on his back and floating in head first. He was no more than twelve to fifteen feet from me. I didn't move one bit as I gazed at him. His arms were to his side, and he lay motionless, but the incoming water was moving him along this creek at about four miles an hour. His body was barely awash, meaning that he was floating on top of the water with about half an inch of water covering his body, except for his pinkish, reddish face, which floated out of the water. I'd say from the front of where his ears should be to the front of his face. His nose, eyes, and mouth were out of the water. His facial skin looked wrinkly, not a lot, but he had mostly deep wrinkles on his face. Another thing about his face, the skin was bare, not even a whisker, no hair at all on his face. One more thing, the amount of his facial reddishness was like a sunburnt man, he showed no facial expression. 
Only his eyes moved over to me, and that was a little scary to me, but I stood there and stared back at him. I don't think I shared any expression. About the hair, it was about six to eight inches long and loosely floated around his body. It looked like it was the consistency or thickness of a golden retriever dog, not thick and matted like other Bigfoot reports that I've read. I did notice his knees, hairy, slightly bent up, and still just below the water. While I was watching him, I saw no effort to move his hands or arms. He easily drifted in without any body, arm, or hand movement that I noticed. I'll never forget how I felt during the brief time that I saw him. It was a deep soul connection that overcame me. I felt peaceful and calm during the whole time. I think I said this guy was about twelve feet from me, maybe even a little closer. I want to go back to where I saw him some day in hopes of connecting with him or his children. I thought it would be hard for me to walk down the little dune and follow him, and I don't think I would have since the dune led into the water, and I thought I would have gotten wet. Besides, I was so startled I could only look at him. Having never heard of these creatures, I ran through my mind every creature I had ever seen, and this didn't exist in my vocabulary of known animals. I was always interested in animals. I never ever saw anything like this. As I was gazing at him, he looked up at me, and we had an eye-to-eye -eye connection, which only lasted a few seconds. I can't say for sure, but I think his eyes were grayish-blue in color. He felt kindly to me, not startled, and I wasn't either. I will never forget this moment, and it's clear as a bell to me after sixty-three years. I ran home to my parents, who were in a house along the beach, and excitedly told them what I had seen. Well, they didn't pay much attention to me and thought I had seen a seal or a walrus or some other sea animal. I never thought much about it, and kind of forgot it after many years. Later I began to hear and read about Bigfoot, and never put what I saw together. The reason was that all reports I have read these creatures were never grayish-white, and they weren't very tall. This guy was only about six feet in length, no more, but finally, about ten years ago, I realized that this might have been a yeti. What else could it be? I feel a deep connection to the Bigfoot, and my experience will always be with me. I keep my sighting almost to myself, but though the, what I saw might help in some small way, I, uh, you know, tell others to help understand what's going on, you may publish this and use as you wish. You may use my first name, but please keep my contact information private. B.J., from Maine, Sunday, March 13th, 2011. That's the end of story number four. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This encounter is being brought to you by William Jevening. It's being narrated by Jim Sower. This is from Jackson County, Prospect, Oregon, Union Creek, 2001. Back in the winter of 2001, my youngest son and I were on our way from Boise, Idaho, to Medford, Oregon. We had taken a car trailer to his old place in Boise in order to haul his 
non-running jeep to his new place in Medford. We hit an area of heavy snow in the southern Cascades around 2 o'clock a.m. It took 45 minutes or so to get down the mountain. We had, of course, been drinking coffee to stay alert. About 25 miles west of the pass, it became obvious that the last few quarts of coffee had to be drained. We stopped at a wide spot in the road near a summer tourist haunt, deserted in winter. There is a gas station and ice cream joint on the west side of the road, closed this time of year, and no town or settlement within 30 miles. This is tall timber country, and unsettled. Across the road is a small parking area for the ice cream joint. It is paved, and about 200 feet wide and 80 feet deep. I pulled in, and as I stepped out with my 45 on my hip, it occurred to me in a flash that grabbing the 590 Mossy would also be good. As we walked to the far end of the area, to be well off the road, the hair on the back of my neck and my arms stood on end. The area directly to our front was open with a depth of 50 yards and a width of 100 yards. The night was clear and cold, 8 to 10 inches of snow on the ground, and with the moon almost full, so we could see quite well. While standing and taking a leak with my son about 15 feet to my right, I saw, as if springing from the earth in front of us across the open area, ten or twelve creatures moving rapidly back and forth in sort of a thatch-weave pattern. These things, not human men, were close to seven feet tall, thin, bipedal with long arms, medium-length gray fur, and damned fast on their feet. I brought the shotgun up and slid the safety off as my son was drawing his forty-five. I don't know if I can adequately explain the overwhelming feeling of menace, but here goes. I had been operating on pure instinct since I had stepped from the pickup. The rotten feeling hit me a split second before the things arrived. The feeling, instinct, was that we were prey and subject to a very bad death, and to be slaughtered and eaten. Not a logical process, but gut-feeling and massively overwhelming. As they were moving around in front of us, more appeared and mixed among them, all the while running about fast in front of us. My son and I were backing toward the truck now. I would not present my back to them, and some of them peeled right and left in an encirclement movement. They were rolling in fast from the sides now, and I could smell and feel their presence. We got to the truck, loaded on adrenaline and ready to kill. As we both knew we were in grave danger, we piled into the truck, locked the doors. I had the keys out and ready as my butt neared the seat. I had the engine lit and transmission in gear and gas pedal mashed in one motion. Adrenaline is great stuff. As we fled, yes, fled, Something very close by let out an undulating scream of rage and pain. I believe one or more of the group had gotten really close to us in their pursuit, and I had run over the foot of one of them. Yeah, they were that close. We rolled onto the highway, and I told my son to watch the bed of the pickup, as well as the trailer. He already was indexed to the rear with a shotgun. We hauled ass for at least twenty miles before the feeling of grave danger started to abate. 
The feeling that nailed both of us, as we discussed soon afterward, was one of being prey and soon to be slaughtered and eaten. I am not easily led, and neither believe or disbelieve all the Bigfoot, ghost, and werewolf stuff. In fact, I am skeptical. My son was speaking with a co-worker, about six months later, who had grown up in Prospect, Oregon, about thirty miles south of Union Creek, where the incident took place. He asked Jake if he had ever heard any strange goings-ons up in their area. Jake went ashy white, and pretty much retold the above tale. He says, to avoid the place at night. <laughs> a family friend, a twenty-five-year retired cop, not given to flights of fancy, and an excellent observer, had a tale very similar from a year before. I told my wife of this event, and of course... She looked at me at the beginning as though I had developed a third eyeball in the center of my forehead. That was from shock. She did believe me, but did not wish to hear any details. She said the tale gave her chills. Me too. As I write this, the hair on the back of my neck and forearms is sticking up. I have not gone back to explore, and would not, without a large group of shotgun and flamethrower-equipped men with me. My son and I are both sane, sober persons, and not taken to hysteria. We were wide, very wide awake, as things transpired. We saw and smelled what was there. As a sidebar, neither of us heard footfalls from the creatures. They were silent until I heard one as we were getting the hell out of there. To my knowledge, and I have researched, there is nothing that matches these creatures unless one considers old legends and folk tales of weir creatures. To conclude, I have to fall back on Elmer Keith's famous line, Hell, I was there. This concludes the reading of the encounter. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's william, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.